Everybody's Political What's What by George Bernard Shaw Read by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes Chapter 1 Is Human Nature Incurably Depraved? If it is, reading this book will be a waste of time, and it should be exchanged at once for a detective story or some pleasant classic, according to your taste. For though the book is in a sense a detective story, inasmuch as it is an attempt to track down some of the mistakes that have landed us in a gross misdistribution of domestic income, and in two world wars in 25 years, yet if we have neither the political capacity nor the goodwill to remedy them, we had better not to torment ourselves uselessly by making ourselves conscious of them. Better cling to our delusions and keep our hope and self-respect, making the most of our vices and follies before they destroy us. I grant that the case against us seems strongly fortified by the fact that just now the nations are engaged in a horrible reciprocity of slaughter and destruction. You have only to read Gulliver's Travels to learn from the king of Brobdingnag, how English history may on its bare facts lead to the conclusion that mankind is incorrigibly villainous. When Swift threw off the mask of the king, he described a utopia ruled by horses, in which men were vermin and were not called men but yahoos. Yet Swift did not know the whole truth of the condition of mankind, nor did Goldsmith, though his deserted village shews how he concluded that honor sinks where commerce long prevails. Not until the 19th century, when Karl Marx tore the reports of our factory inspectors from our unread blue books and revealed capitalism and all its atrocity, did pessimism and cynicism reach their blackest depth. He proved up to the hilt that capital, in its pursuit of what he called mareworth, which we translate as surplus value, it includes rent, interest, and commercial profit, is ruthless and will stop at nothing not even at mutilation and massacre, white and black slavery, drugging and drinking, if they promise a shilling percent more than the dividends of philanthropy. Before Marx, there had been plenty of pessimism. The book of Ecclesiastes and the Bible is full of it. Shakespeare and King Lear, in Timon of Athens, in Coriolanus, got to it and stuck there. So did Swift and Goldsmith. But none of them could document the case from official sources, as Marx did. He thereby created that demand for a new world, which not only inspires modern communism and socialism, but in 1941 became the platform catchword of zealous conservatives and churchmen. They all agreed that you cannot have a new sort of world without a new sort of man. A change of heart, they called it. But the Bible tells us that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And history seems to confirm the Bible. The deeper we dig into it, the more evidence we find that not only ancient Greece and Rome, but half a dozen earlier civilizations as advanced and imposing as our own collapsed. Apparently, the changes needed to save them were repudiated by the unchanging human heart, convincing the pessimists that the demand for a new world has not the faintest chance of being supplied by our generation of yahoos now busy slaughtering and murdering one another in a war which is fundamentally not merely maniacal, but nonsensical. Nevertheless, if this book is to be worth writing or reading, I must assume that all this pessimism and cynicism is a delusion caused not only by ignorance of contemporary facts, but, insofar as they are known, by drawing wrong conclusions from them. 
It is not true that all the atrocities of capitalism are the expression of human vice and evil will. On the contrary, they are largely the product of domestic virtue, of patriotism, of philanthropy, of enterprise, of progressiveness, of all sorts of socially valuable qualities. The unscrupulous misers and grabbers have no public opinion on their side. The results may be hell on earth, but it is a hell paved with good intentions. Capitalism is not an orgy of human villainy. It is a utopia that has dazzled and misled very amiable and public-spirited men. From Turgo and Adam Smith to Cobden and Bright, the upholders of capitalism are dreamers and visionaries who, instead of doing good with evil intentions like Mephistopheles, do evil with the best intentions. With such human material, we can produce a dozen new worlds when we learn both the facts and the lessons in political science the facts teach. For before a good man can carry out his good intentions, he must not only ascertain the facts, but reason on them. This is a counsel of perfection. All we can actually do is to get as much information as we can and act on it to the best of our fallible judgment. And our information is fallible too. It may, for instance, be honest and accurate, but out of date. Information that was quite substantial in 1066 for William the Conqueror may be completely obsolete for a prime minister in the 20th century. If education has not kept pace with the changing facts, the prime minister may be a walking anachronism. Most of our prime ministers are. If the information dates from 1500, when the feudal barons had largely killed one another off and the facts, becoming commercial, appealed as much to the Welsh adventurer who consummated the baronial slaughter by killing Richard III and succeeding him as king. The schools founded then will be mercantile, middle-class, anti-feudal, and even regicidal. Ministers educated in them will challenge conservative premiers as leaders of a liberal opposition, starting a tradition that they represent progress and individual liberty as against conservatism and feudal serfdom. When the resultant industrial revolution reaches a point at which the capital needed for a start in big business rises from hundreds of pounds to millions, the employers lose their mastery and are enslaved by the financiers as salaried managers, thus becoming employees. And with this new change in the facts, we have the scions of the newly proletarianized middle class denouncing liberalism as iniquitous and ruinous and Ruskin College and its like educating labor leaders to hurl Marxisms at the head of the feudal conservatives and the liberal mercantilists alike. The trouble about these evolutions is that our human habits and ideas do not change synchronically with the facts. In the 11th century, England was feudalized by the Norman conquest, with the land owned by the king and the barons holding their estates from him on strenuous public conditions. By the 19th century, the system had evolved or degenerated into a three-class system, the land being virtually owned by its inheritors or purchasers, cultivated by a proletariat too numerous to fetch more than the bare subsistence in the labor market, and managed by a middle class selling its commercial and professional ability to the landlords at supply and demand prices, all three being politically free, but infant in complete bondage economically. Nevertheless, the great public schools established by dominant ecclesiastics and feudal monarchs in the 14th and 15th centuries, which set the fashion for the later schools founded by rich merchants, continue to teach the feudal system and the church creeds in England today. 
even their limitation to Latin as the language of literature, religion, diplomacy, and law survives, defying the fact that vernacular Latin did a natural death 15 centuries ago. The technique and tradition of secondary education established in this way still dominates our educational system. I once ventured to criticize it in the presence of a Winchester master. He proudly adduced as a proof of the modernity and intellectual leadership of his school that it had just actually introduced a mathematical master, thus reaching in the 20th century the point reached by Archimedes 2,000 years ago. When the development of commerce forced the universities to add political economy to their curriculum, it was tolerated and even welcomed as proving that a business policy of entire selfishness, politely called individualism, would automatically produce continuous employment at subsistence wages for the whole population, headed by a superior class in sufficient affluence to accumulate capital and maintain culture. And this also petrified into a tradition and is still caught as it was when it was invented by the French physiocrats two centuries ago. It never was true. What it really produced automatically were the horrors of poverty brought to light by Karl Marx, against which humanitarians of all parties agitated for factory acts and trade unions too powerful to be persecuted as criminal conspiracies. The time lag in education thus varies from 100 years to 2000 and produces the quaint phenomenon known as the old-school ties, meaning the government of modern states by cabinets, in which the outlooks on society of Noah and Samuel, of William the Conqueror and Henry VII, of Cromwell and Tom Paine, of Adam Smith and Robert Owens, of Jesus and Charles Darwin, are all jumbled up in incalculable confusion. When confronted as they are today with upstart foreign dictators who have read Karl Marx in the light of a bitter personal experience of proletarian poverty and persecution, and therefore know the worst of the world they are living in, the resulting misunderstandings are tragic as well as comic, and in either case, disastrous. To the old-school ties, the dictators seem ignorant, uneducated rebels. To the dictators, the ties seem sordid, exploiters who live by robbing the poor, and intend to go on doing it by hook or crook, mostly crook. And both factions have the best intentions and believe they are seizing to do evil and learning to do well. Sometimes the parties are more dangerous when they profess agreement than when they contradict. When Mr. H. G. Wells drafted a new Declaration of Rights and submitted it for general discussion, I found myself in perfect agreement with it. That was perhaps to be expected, but I found myself in equally perfect agreement with all the other parties to the discussion as well including persons who regard my political aims as subversive and even diabolical. This apparently millennial harmony was shattered by the Prime Minister, Mr. Winston Churchill, who said in reply to certain skeptics who were pressing him for a more explicit declaration of our war aims, that if you try to set forth in a catalogue what will be the exact settlement of affairs, you will find that the moment you leave the area of pious platitude, you will descend into the arena of heated controversy. With this deadly sentence, Mr. Churchill knocked down all the skittles with one single throw, leaving us in the region of abstraction, in which we appear a united nation. Such unanimity is useful in wartime, when we all have to fight for our lives whether we like it or not. But anyone who supposes that it will continue when the war is over, and we have to start rebuilding and cleaning up, is deluded by phrases as useless for legislative purposes as 
algebraical symbols which represent quantities but give no information as to quantities of what. As long as we describe the virtues we are to practice and the vices we are to eschew in abstract terms, every sane thinker, from Confucius and Moses to Jesus and Mohammed, and from these to the Pope and the President of the National Secular Society, agrees with us wholeheartedly. But the moment we come down to tin tacks and raise the question whether some specific stroke of conduct is virtuous or vicious, allowable or criminal, the agreement vanishes, and we are plunged into controversies which may be carried to the extreme of sanguinary crusades. We all agree as to the sanctity of legal marriage, but the yes-men include the Kulin polygamist, who has conferred his caste on a hundred daughters of rich men by marrying them, very temporarily for a consideration. The Muslim who draws the line at four wives, the Hollywood hero or heroine of many divorces, and the Irish couples bound together in an indissoluble monogamy. These varieties must either oppress one another unbearably or agree to differ. And that is not always possible. Smokers and non-smokers cannot be equally free in the same railway carriage. To get enough real agreement to make a body of common law possible, we must have not only psychological homogeneity, the homogeneity must also be scientific. As Mr. Wells puts it, common law presupposes common knowledge. For legislative purposes, it also presupposes common conclusions drawn from that knowledge. The Pitcairn Islanders know as much as the British, but do not bother about high civilization because they look to the second coming of Christ in the near future to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. My study of vaccination has convinced me that it is an ignorant delusion and its imposition often a shocking tyranny. But many writers who have the same opportunities as I, finding out all about it, are persuaded that the nation will be wiped out by confluent smallpox if vaccination be not sternly enforced on everyone at frequent intervals. In Russia, they are all communists, with a beautiful Wellesian constitution. But the official economists, believing that their most urgent need is for more factories, more power stations, and more railways, oppose and coerce the people who want more silver watches. And what are the hyperesthetic and furiously energetic people who want to work 16 hours a day, spend tens of thousands a year, retire at 40, and die worn out at 60, to do with the anesthetic people who want to work 4 hours a day for 300 a year, retire at 60, and die at 90? when both of them come face to face with a government advanced enough to be intensely jealous of shaking social stability by any serious inequality of income among its citizens. There is also the difficulty that the clearest knowledge of what needs to be done does not carry with it the knowledge of how to do it. Dickens describes our governing classes as perfect masters of the art of how not to do it. But then thinking themselves very well off as they are, they do not want to do it. Rulers who honestly and intensely want to do it make disastrous messes of their jobs because they do not know how to do them. When Mohammed divided the calendar into 12 lunar months, he meant well, and proceeded not on obsolete theories but on visible astrophysical scientific facts. Yet the seasonal caravans soon went all wrong because his knowledge, sound enough as far as it went, did not go far enough. However, we need not go way back to the 7th century for examples. During the 10 years after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 in Russia, the communist government, though up to date and even ahead of it in social theory and knowledge of the facts, 
made so many legislative and administrative mistakes that the survival of the communist state and even of the Russian people still seems miraculous and providential. The Bolsheviks knew what they wanted but did not know how to get it. And if the heads of our old school ties could be emptied of everything political they learnt at school or at home and refitted with Lenin's mental furniture and faculty, they would make all the mistakes over again and bring the country even nearer to starvation and ruin without any guarantee that the circumstances would allow us to pull through as Lenin did. There was nothing to be done but fence off as many of the pitfalls and signposts as many of the right roads we can. Suppose we begin with the land question. It is so fundamental that if we go wrong on it, everything else will go wrong automatically. Chapter 2. The Land Question What is the common-sense view of the agricultural land question, as it seems to townsmen born and bred? It is that a farmer should own the land he cultivates. If this land is not his own, and he may not drive trespassers off it with the law at his back, what security can he have for the possession and consumption of his harvest? So by all means, let him own his plot against all comers. The cultivators will then strive according to their industry, their temperance, their honesty, in short, their good character and aptitude for their difficult technical job. If under these circumstances a man and his family are not well-to-do, it is reasonably safe to conclude that either he has mistaken his calling and should try city life, or else there is a screw loose in his character, and his poverty and failure serve him right. Such is the simple morality of the earth's pioneer cultivators. It works well enough in regions where there is still equally fertile land free for everybody without paying a landlord for it. What we are suffering from at present is the persistence of this primitive morality, now that the facts contradict it flatly at every point. Modern cultivators are not pioneers. They cannot find an acre of land of equal fertility free within their reach, nor indeed any land at all. Yet farmers who have to work 16 hours a day to pay their rent, their taxes, and the interest on their mortgages still tell you gravely that they are independent, that they are their own masters, that they enjoy the priceless benefit of political freedom, and that foreign governments which have abolished private property and land must be such monsters and bloodthirsty tyrants that it is our duty to civilization to make war upon them and root out their horrible doctrines from the mind of man. They learn this at home and in school, and have it dinned into them by the press, by the wireless, by parliament, by the judges, and by the platform speeches they listen to at election times. And they mean well. They honestly believe that they are standing up for the social foundation of all private and public honor and virtue when they are really voting for idleness, waste, vicious luxury, parasitism, poverty, overwork, and all the other evils that follow selfish private property in the ultimate sources of public welfare. But let us not rush into political pessimism and declare that they are only getting what they deserve for their stupid wickedness. Bring them up as a collective farmers paying rent to the state for the common good, as they now pay taxes to it, and precisely the same ethical impulses that now make them bigoted conservatives will make Bolsheviks of them. Russia has proved it. To understand the matter, we must begin by grasping the fact that land is neither unlimited in quantity nor equally valuable everywhere. 
varies from acre to acre between frontages in the city of London, which are valued by the foot, and Saharas, on which human life cannot subsist. Within the British Islands, there are places where at low tide the inhabitants pick up coal and take it home in their prams for nothing, and mines from which, after 20 years' expensive tunneling, coal is hewn and transported laboriously from miles out under the sea. There are lands flowing with milk and honey, lands oozing oil, lands stuffed with diamonds or gold nuggets, Eldorados of all sorts, side by side with deserts of waterless sand, malarious swamps and jungles, haunted by venomous snakes and man-eating leopards. In the loveliest landscapes of Western Ireland and Scotland, there are stony fields on which the hardest labor will not support the cultivator unless he can get a yearly job as harvest laborer elsewhere. On suburban roads, the house rents vary from mile to mile by the amount of fare by the tram, bus, or railway to the nearest market or business center. If rents vary, as they do from shillings a week to thousands a year, it is because the earth varies in fertilities, proximities, advantages, and disadvantages of all descriptions. These are not views of the land question, they are facts. Women bringing up their children on a war allowance of two quid a week and paying 14 shillings a week rent are also facts. If the land of a country be divided up into separate plots and made the property of its occupiers, the final result will not be that individuals will be rich in proportion to their industry, honesty, sobriety, and capacity. Some of them will be long-lived and fabulously rich. Others will be fever-stricken and half-starved, or on the road as destitute traps, with the rest somewhere on the scale between these extremes. Almost immediately, the unlucky ones will abandon their barren sands and swamps and offer to cultivate the land of the lucky ones for a better subsistence, giving up the rest of the product to the owner as rent. The lucky ones thus become not only a rich class, but, if they like, an idle one. Enough of them will like it to constitute them a class of ladies and gentlemen, and set up a tradition that is disgraceful to have to work for a living, or even to carry a parcel through the street. Walking, instead of riding or being driven in carriages, involves loss of caste. Besides, when all the land has been appropriated, the subsequently born will have no land and will become a new helot class called the proletariat, living by the sale of their labor to the cultivators or as tenant farmers or craftsmen, paying rent for the land they occupy. When more proletarians are born than the cultivators can profitably employ, The price of the proletarian labor falls to a point at which it will barely support a life shortened by slow starvation. In this state of things, the proprietors are the only people who have more money than they need spend. They have practically all the spare money in the country. Spare money is called capital, and the proprietors, already called landlords and living by owning, become capitalists and lend their capital to men of business for rent called interest, exactly as they have leased their lands. Class monopoly of capital follows class monopoly of land, as inevitably as winter follows autumn. Let us go into the history of the matter for a moment. William the Conqueror is interesting even eight centuries after his death, as an example of the advantage of crossbreeding between the classes. He was not an inbred nobleman, he was a duke's bastard and the grandson of a vulgar tanner, and he was able enough to collect an army of Norman adventurers and conquer England. Being a feudalist and royalist, he divided the land into great estates, to be fortified with castles distributed among his French comrades in arms, or left in the hands of Saxon holders, who gave him no trouble. 
to make what they could out of them on condition that they undertook the military defense of the country, the administration of justice in their domains, the financing of the royal establishments, and generally the discharging of their local share of civilization subject to their fealty to himself as king and the inheritance of their estates at their deaths in undivided integrity by a single male heir capable of assuming all their responsibilities. Being a baptized Catholic, he built churches and abbeys as well as castles and gave the estates they stood on to the clergy on condition that they took charge of the spiritual welfare of the people. It was quite a reasonable arrangement under the circumstances and kept the country in order for a while in an agricultural society of barons, bishops, farmers, and serfs. But only for a while. Only as long as the facts corresponded roughly to the plan of feudalism. And facts will not, like plans, stay put. Kings and barons, however able, are only mortal men. And ability does not always pass from father to son. It often dies with its possessor. Yet the feudal system, instead of providing for the selection of able persons to succeed the kings and barons, only stipulated that the successor should be a male. And to the question, which male, it replied, the dead man's eldest son. This avoided fights for the succession but it was no guarantee of the new ruler's competence as civil judge and military chieftain. William's eldest son was a failure and did not succeed him, though he actually made war on his father in France and defeated him. Among the barons, there were many such failures who did succeed their fathers and either made a disastrous mess of it or drifted along doing what the other barons did. The few who were neither failures nor nincompoops and were in effect local kings strove for the control of the country, and even for the throne, against the central king. The system had the seeds of civil war in it from the first. It also created a class of younger sons for whom it made no provision, and who in England were commoners brought up to baronial habits and expenditure without incomes to pay for them. They had either to live on the bounty of their elder brothers or obtain national employment as army officers and diplomats or church livings and bishoprics. Their descendants had to live by practicing professions, which was such a come-down that within my own recollection, the facts that doctors accepted money for their services was treated as a disgraceful secret, and you paid your doctor as furtively as you tipped a butler. The barrister's gown still has little back pockets, relics of the time when you slipped his fee into his pocket behind his back. Finally, the younger son's descendants had to condescend first to wholesale business then to clerkship, then to retail trade, then to manual craftsmanship, and at last to unskilled labor, whence it comes that you find quite commonly that an English laborer is an inveterate snob who regards himself as an aristocrat under a cloud and votes always for the conservative candidate at elections, whilst dukes and marquesses are supporting the labor party in the House of Lords. The feudal system found itself confronted not only with its disinherited cadets, but with a 5% or so of commoners, who by natural political or commercial ability acquired spiritual power or material riches, purchasing power, as cardinals and merchant princes. The cardinals, organized in a Catholic church, were deeply vowed to holy poverty and humility, but they found these virtues insufficient without a backing of temporal power and had to join the strife for control of the state, siding sometimes with the barons and sometimes with the king, but necessarily always against the heretics, an intellectual class not provided for in the system. 
As for the merchant princes, they built cities which became petty states, competing with both church and king for power. Charles Martel, a great feudal soldier, chieftain of the 8th century in France, virtually its king, had a short way with cities. He simply destroyed them, as he destroyed dens of thieves. But later kings could not do without the money of the cities and had to tolerate them. With that money, the burgesses bought land and built cities on it. They hired armies of proletarians to fight for them against church, crown, and peerage. They strove continually to abolish all the feudal conditions attached to property in land and make it a commodity to be traded in like the portable products of their factories. Now, trade in land was not much use to them without trade in labor, which was immovably attached to the feudal estates by serfage and settlement, so that the serfs could not desert the estates and sell their labor, that is, sell themselves, to the merchant princes in the cities. Labor, like land, had to be made a trade commodity to be bought and sold like any other commodity. Thus, the commercial class came into politics as the champions of personal freedom. But it was only freedom in the abstract. For when the serfs escaped from the estates and church glebes and crowded into the cities, they glutted the labor market and cheapened themselves to such a degree that poverty, excessive toil, and cruel subservience to the monopolists of capital at last forced them to become bitterly conscious of themselves under the general name of the proletariat, as a class for which there is no hope under either feudalism or capitalism. Slowly they began to organize themselves, first in trade unions fiercely persecuted by the landlords, the money lords, and the church, and later in alliance with bodies of doctrinaire socialists, both aiming at the dictatorship of the proletariat. The socialists providing the intellectual leadership and the trade unions the money. This development achieved the miracle of uniting the city men and the landed gentry into a plutocracy standing solid against the proletarianism. Marx met the challenge in 1861 by his slogan, Proletarians in all lands unite, and declared the class war for the abolition of private property with its unearned incomes and the political organization of society as a cooperative commonwealth of workers. The two parties came to blows in 1871 in the sanguinary suppression of the Paris Commune by the plutocrats, followed 50 years later by the triumph of the proletariat in Russia in 1920. In 1939, in Spain, the proletariat was defeated again. Meanwhile, however, the plutocrats who had begun by furiously opposing any interference by the government in their money-making activities, had their minds changed on this point by the proletarian economists, who shewed that the fullest development of modern production was beyond the means of private enterprise and could be achieved only by the authority and financial resources of the state. If they could retain their control of the state and use it for their own enrichment instead of for the general good, Thus combining socialist production with plutocratic distribution, they could make fortunes undreamt of by their competitive forebears. A movement grew up to steal the thunder of the socialists and substitute state capitalism for private capitalism, whilst maintaining private property with all its privileges intact, and buying off the proletariat with doles and higher wages. This movement was called fascism in Italy, and national socialism, or for short, Nazism in Germany, in both of which countries it captured and financed proletarian leaders and put them in command of the government, namely Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler.
In England and America, where it was much less lucid, it was called the New Deal and the New Order, thus securing a footing in both the democratic and plutocratic camps. But at the cost of a war with Italy and Germany for European hegemony, For when the new fascist dictators invited the Western states to join them in a grand attack on proletarian Russia, they were rebuffed as dangerous and subversive revolutionaries, whereupon the two dictators desperately undertook jointly the subjection not only of Russia, but of recalcitrant Britain and America as well. The only considerable ally they gained was Japan, leaving them in the position of having to fight both the communists and the plutocracies in a paradoxical but terribly formidable combination to destroy them. That is roughly the present historical situation. Now let us return to tin tacks. Though I am in theory a communist, and by profession a playwright, I am in fact and in rank a landlord, and an absentee landlord at that, for my estate is in Ireland. When I inherited it, I was a responsible married adult, and had I lived under William, he would have expected me to administer justice between my tenants, like a caddy under a palm tree, to lead them to battle in his wars, to control and direct the cultivation of my land, and to bear my share of financing him in various ways. I dare say I could have done this at least as well as some of his barons, but the first things I discovered were that my estate did not belong to me at all, and that I had no power to control it or direct its management. Instead of the title deeds, I received a bundle of mortgages and a packet of pawn tickets. I was not greatly surprised, for my uncle, from whom I inherited, had died shabby and almost indigent. The medical practice he had purchased and once lived prosperously by an attendance on the country squires having been ruined by the conversion of the country houses and parks into rows of small houses inhabited by city clerks with salaries of 15 shillings a week. The wages of his one faithful servant were seventeen years in arrear, and his gold watch had been pawned, leaving him to count pulses by a silver one, which he had presented me with many years before, and was afterwards obliged to borrow from me. I had been with him when he bought the gold watch for thirty pounds. He had pawned it for three pounds, dash ten, dash zero, and for years clung to the right to redeem it by borrowing the interest on that sum from my mother. Inheriting this right, I took the ticket to the pawnbroker and redeemed the watch. I then took it to a place in London where I handed it in for sale by auction. It sold for £3-10-0, which I duly got back less the auctioneer's commission. Having made no profit on the transaction and lost the commission, I accepted this result as typical and dropped all the other pawn tickets into the waste paper basket. I then bought the estate, which was supposed to be my property, from the mortgages by paying them off and thus became in effect myself the mortgagee and the real proprietor. This I could not have done had I not had other resources unconnected with the estate. But that is not the end of the story. I never understood why the estate had always been described as a nice little one. The land was no longer used for agriculture, but for residences and places of business. In short, it had become part of a town. The lessees had sublet it. The sublesses had done the same with it in bits and scraps to such an extent that, though I could point to certain houses as being on my property, I had no control over them nor any power to improve them in any way. But I could exact from this or that lessee or sublessee a head rent or quit rent or what not, representing only a fragment of the value of the site. 
There were only three houses really in my hands and under my control, and their condition was so ruinous that when I attempted to have one of them put into habitable repair, collapsed the moment the builders touched it. It had been mortgaged to its full value and beyond. My uncle could not afford to repair it, nor could the tenant, and it was not the mortgagee's business to meddle with it as long as his interest was paid. In short, the property was a nice little one because I could do nothing with most of it except make its inhabitants pay me without letting me in for any of the contingent powers and responsibilities imposed by the feudal system. I am not a judge, ruler, custodian, soldier, civil servant, director, controller, nor anything else of the smallest use to the country. The powers of life and death which Henry II attached to my lands and which he would have exercised over me if I had neglected or abused them, if he had been strong enough, have gone. But so also have the duties. Nothing remains but a nice little property, which I can sell or mortgage to any stranger who never lent a hand at the Battle of Hastings or the Strongbow Raid, nor can shew any evidence of carrying two straws for the public wheel. This development of a feudal barony into a nice little property and of a responsible public servant into an irresponsible parasite became possible and inevitable when the feudal world of agriculture and chivalry became a world of commerce and competition. Some of the big estates yet survive, and where great cities have grown up upon them, their owners have become enormously rich and still exercise powers which may be described as powers of life and death as they can turn the farmer and his laborers into the street and replace them by sheep, by shopkeepers, by rich sportsmen addicted to deer shooting, or by anybody who will pay more for the use of their land than any farmer can afford. Thus we have the nice big properties as well as the nice little ones, the owners being equally irresponsible. They may be philanthropists, more or less, but there is nothing in their social training to prevent them from being luxuriously voracious and everything to encourage them in that direction. It becomes demonstrably not only their individual interests, but their social duty to rack-rent their land and invest their capital at the highest interest obtainable. This immunity from the moral law distinguishes property and land so effectively from ordinary property that lawyers call them real property and personal property. The distinction is supposed to have been abolished by the legislation of 1925, which made an end of feudal primogeniture, but it holds good all the same. The landlord is licensed to possess a gun as his personal property, but only on condition that though he may shoot certain animals and birds at certain seasons and under certain circumstances, he may not shoot me with it, whereas if I build up a big business on this land or make my home there, he may take the whole business from me or turn me out at the end of my lease without the least regard to my interests. That this state of things does not provoke a general massacre of landlords may seem surprising to those who grasp it in its enormity. It actually has from time to time. Before the Land Purchase Acts took effect in Ireland, ribbon lodges were formed by the Irish peasantry to shoot landlords as such. The French Revolution had for its cutting edge the burning of the great landlords' country houses. The Chateau by the peasants. The same tactics had a main share in the establishment of the Irish Free State. In Russia, the Bolshevik government established in 1917 abolished private property in land, real property, as an institution, 
and has made any attempt to exercise it a criminal offense. But the system does not always work so unbearably as to drive people who have been brought up to regard it as honest to rebellion and assassination. When a landless man agrees to take a plot from a landlord at so much a year, he does so voluntarily, on his own initiative, content if he can make the sort of living he is accustomed to out of it, and thinking it is natural to pay for his land as for his umbrella. He does not understand the land question and often looks forward to becoming a land proprietor himself, where there is always land enough in the market for people with money enough to buy it. Even if the purchaser has not money enough, he can still purchase land and borrow the price on mortgage. The difference between buying an umbrella from its maker and leasing land from someone who found it ready-made was no secret among the political economists. Revolting peasants could only sing, when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? But the educated French physiocrats went into the matter scientifically. French reformers before the revolution, notably the father of Mirabeau, were proposing the abolition of taxes on commodities and the substitution of a single tax on land as a means of nationalizing rent. This proposal was laughed out of countenance by Voltaire who pointed out that it would have the rent of capital untouched, and that whilst the landlord would starve, the banker would be richer than ever. The proposal was, however, revived a century later with extraordinary eloquence by the American Henry George, whose volume entitled Progress and Poverty had a wide circulation, and incidentally drew my attention to the subject. But by that time, the land question had developed into a capital question of such magnitude that Voltaire's criticism was stronger than ever. For it was evident that if the state confiscated rent without being prepared to employ it, instantly as capital in industry, production would cease and the country be starved. Consequently, a movement had begun called socialism, advocating the organization of industry by the state for the benefit of the whole people. When this alternative to capitalism appeared, the official economists became much less candid on the subject of rent. Meanwhile, a Frenchman had written an essay entitled, What is property? It is theft. Easy-going people said, how silly. Serious people said, how wicked, how dishonest. But the Frenchman, named Proudhon, was neither silly nor dishonest. He had analyzed the situation and discovered that the landlord and capitalists, inasmuch as they consume without producing, inflict precisely the same injury on the community as a thief does. That great and intensely respectable Englishman John Ruskin put the same point when he reminded us that there are only three possible ways of making a living. One working, two begging, and three stealing. Are our landlords therefore thieves? William Morris, the greatest of our English communists, replied bluntly, Yes, damned thieves. They live by robbing the poor. But to Quincy, the greatest Tory wit, called the landlord's country gentlemen, adding, Who more worthy? Marx called them bourgeoisie, which is now out of date, as the poorer bourgeoisie had been proletarianized by big business and the richer absorbed by the plutocracy. Cairns, a leading English economist, described them as drones in the hive. For my own part, I do not call myself a thief, my intentions are not dishonest, and I did not institute, nor have I any power to change, the legalized system under which I became a landlord, whether I liked it or not. But I have devoted all my political life to rubbing in the aforesaid fact that, 
I inflict on my tenants exactly the same economic injury as a burglar, pickpocket, shoplifter, highwayman, or any sort of robber. I'm not a robber, Baron, because I'm not a Baron, but a robber, I certainly am in effect. For I make my tenants yield up to me a part of their hard-earned incomes without doing them, or having ever done them, any service whatever. That this is not my fault, and has been to some extent my misfortune, does not make their rents any easier to pay. That in paying off the mortgages I bought my powers of my exploitation with hard cash is equally irrelevant. The burglar has to pay for his jemmy. How then is the nation to get rid of me? To shoot me, as the late Lord Letram's tenants got rid of him, would only substitute my next of kin for myself in the proprietorship. For the state or the municipality to seize my land and throw me into the street would need a Bolshevik revolution to legalize it, and a new public department for the management of all the estates in the country ready in full working order to take over from me. For the first rule in transferring private property to public property is obviously that the government shall not confiscate any item of property in land or capital that is not ready to put an immediate use to productivity as before. If a field is not cultivated, it will not only grow thistles, but spread them to the neighboring cultivated fields. The solution in my separate single case is simple enough. As soon as the municipality of the city in which my property is situated needs my land for, say, an electric power station, for public baths, for schools, for a tramway terminus, for the police or the fire brigade, for a new town hall, post office, labor exchange, or whatnot, all it need to do is purchase it from me at its rateable value and obtain the price by levying a rate on all the rateable values in the city, including my own. Thus, my bit of land would become public property at the expense of the whole body of landlords, I bearing no more than my fair share of the expropriation instead of being ruined by it, whilst my fellow landlords get off scot-free. There would be nothing unusual about the transaction. People are accustomed to the sale and purchase of land, and to rates varying by a penny or so in the pound from year to year. I would have to find some new investment for the purchase money, or, were I an occupier, a new house to live in or trade in. But the public would not bother about that. It happens to somebody every day. This apparently customary transaction need only be repeated often enough to transfer all the land of the town from private to public ownership and exterminate the local landlords as such painlessly. It is equally possible as between the national government and the holders of great estates. Nearby where I live, a private company purchased such an estate and built a garden city on it. Its costs was not raised by a public rate, it was subscribed by private speculators. I was one of them, and am accordingly now a British landlord as well as an Irish one. But if the government should conclude at any future time that it can make a better use of the city for the national welfare than I and my fellow shareholders are making of it for our private profit, it can easily buy it from us and obtain the money by a tax on the incomes of all the landlords in the country. Here again, the transaction has only to be repeated often enough to effect the complete nationalization of the land, without departing from the usual routine of business, without revolutionary legislation, and without mention of the world nationalization or the world compensation, which is abhorrent to doctrinaire nationalizers. The only alternative legal process is the resumption of the land by the king under a vestige of feudal law which still remains, though in abeyance and mostly forgotten. 
The last king to exercise it to any considerable degree was Henry V, 500 years ago. William III made some use of it 250 years ago, but it rests on the assumption that the king is a feudal king, which lost all its old correspondence to contemporary facts in 1649. And in most of the European countries today and throughout America, North and South, there is no king. The revolutionary alternative is to declare the land public property and behead all the landlords who do not leave the country in time, as was done in the French Revolution in the 18th century, or shoot the few who actively object and leave the rest to shift for themselves as best they can with their incomes cut off and their houses taken from them, as in Russia in 1917. But in both instances, the new governments established by the revolution could do nothing with the agricultural land but divide it between the peasants few of whom were capable of developing its potential productiveness. The Russian farmers, who made money on their plots and plowed with their own horses, employing other peasants hired as laborers, were denounced as kulaks and thrown out of their farms as exploiters and profiteers, with the result that their farms went to waste and ruin. The Soviet government soon had to hunt up the derelict kulaks and replace them on their farms as violently as they had expelled them. But they were so few that there were still about 90 miserably cultivated plots with their owners living on them, in wood cabins with room enough for one lousy family bed, one stove and a strip of mud floor, to every ten farms cultivated up to Kulak standard, which was still far below the possibilities. And both ordinary peasants and Kulaks, finding that when they produced enough to have some money to spare the Soviet government, took it in taxes which were really in an economic rent, just like the old landlords, killed their horses and cattle and destroyed their seeds rather than have the government distrain upon these for taxes. The Cossacks actually produced artificial famines in this way and had to be left to starve in consequence. The Soviet government finally had to get rid of peasant proprietors, competent and incompetent alike, and substitute collective farms and garden cities which were an immediate and enormous success. With such an object lessened before the eyes of the world, there is clearly no excuse for persistence in the old plan of leaving our agriculture in the hands of uneducated peasants and miseducated country gentlemen, all competing instead of cooperating, and each expected to be his own agricultural chemist, live stock biologist, financier, statistician, practical man of business and accountant. In short, such a paragon of versatility, combined in one person with the admirable Crichton as was never imagined by the wildest romancer. Farming is staff work, not individual work, and no country gentleman or Yale man or peasant can be a staff in himself. Though on a collective farm, staffs are a matter of course. The economic future of the land is with collective farms and garden cities, and no person whose notion of land reform is to turn all the crude agricultural estates into little peasant properties and leave cities as they are, there are many such simpletons, should be allowed to meddle with politics in any capacity. It is, however, psychologically advisable to plan collective farms and garden cities in such a fashion that every house should have attached to it a private plot to play in or grow flowers and vegetables, or keep one's own cow or what not. This concession to privacy has been found necessary in the USSR in spite of the success of the collective farms. It provides for domesticity, which is not the same thing as agriculture, 
though at present the farmhouse must serve most incongruously as dwelling house, and workers are expected to live in mills and forges over their shops and in some countries actually in factories. This is an intolerable state of things. The land question is one of private life as well as of economic productive life. Private life produces babies, who are more vitally important than crops and factory output. Housekeeping is an indispensable industry. No doubt family habits will be greatly modified as communal arrangements prove more convenient than private ones. For example, all the objections to the farmer having to dwell in his farmhouse, the miller in his mill, and the operative in the factory, apply equally to the cook having to live in her kitchen and the scullery maid in her scullery. The kitchen range and the washing-up sink will go all the way of the spinning wheel and the hand loom. And clubs and restaurants, hotels and hostels, hospitals and schools will increase real privacy as fast as they increase communal organization. Parentage, a very onerous industry, has already, for the greater part, shifted from the actual fathers and mothers at home to the teaching staff in the school, that is, from the amateur to the professional. Socialists are preoccupied with changes in this direction that they are apt to overlook the contrary current. When we discuss the Industrial Revolution, we think of how water power and steam power abolished the handloom and drove the proletariat out of the cottages into the factories, where division of labor made it impossible for any worker to learn more than a moment of the long process of collecting raw material, manufacturing it, and marketing the result. This played the very devil with the laboring classes. In the factory towns, they became robots with the feelings of human beings. They lived in pestilential slums, and their children died like flies, whilst the riches and luxury of the landlords and capitalists increased by leaps and bounds, as Gladstone expressed it at the Exchequer. It seemed that mankind must always work in factories and mills and mines, because the power that drove the spinning jenny and the steam hammer could not be distributed and was beyond the means of anyone but capitalists. But we now know that water power and steam power can be converted into electric power and distributed from house to house like water or gas, and used in a cottage by a child to light itself to bed or by a craftsman to harness Niagara to his machine tools. I remember using tallow candles which needed trimming with a scissors, called a snuffers to light me to bed, and smelly oil burners to read by in the evenings. I have had a tooth cavity scraped out with a spike. I have lived to have my teeth, when I had any, drilled by electricity, my hair cut by electricity, my rooms not only lighted but swept and dusted by electricity, turned on from a tap in the wall. The first statesman to see more in this than a nine days wonder was the Russian Lenin. He saw that the way to revolutionize Russia was to electrify Russia. And as fast as the electrification could be affected, Russian steppes and Asiatic deserts became flourishing, slumless, civilized cities, and her wild tribesmen cultivated artisans. Here again, the Western world thought only of the huge electric enterprises of the USSR, of the Dnieper Dam, of the new canals, of the factories built of steel and glass, turning out scores of tractors every day all the work of regimented bodies of workers under direction and discipline. Until the classic investigation by the Sydney Webbs was published, we did not know, and even then did not notice, that the individual craftsman, the smith, the cabinet maker, the potter, the weaver, was rising from the dead in Russia under the socialism which was supposed to be extinguishing him. 
What we did notice was that housekeeping with mechanized kitchens and vacuum cleaners gave the lie to the old statement that a woman's work is never done, and thereby altered that balance between home life and communal life, which had turned so strongly against privacy under the yoke of capitalism. Consequently, no greater mistake can be made by a modern statesman than to let himself be obsessed by the collective side of the land question. Important as that is, Wayland the Smith, working for his own hand and settling his accounts with the state through the tax collector only, may come to be a much bigger factor in politics than the bureaucrat in a totalitarian state factory, to whose rule the incorrigibly individualistic Englishman looks forward with so much misgiving. My own misgivings are in the opposite direction. My craft of playwright can be exercised single-handed on a desert island, and the effect is that authors are harder to organize even for their own protection than hogs. On paper, they are models of every virtue. In business, they are inveterate anarchists, quarrelsome, sentimental, unable to debate without losing their tempers and treating differences from their opinion as personal insults. Journalism, being a social activity, civilizes them. But the romancers, who sit alone and arrange the world out of their own heads, uncontradicted and unedited, never, unless they have a strong sense of humor, learn to live in political society, and have to be indulged by statesmen as visitors from another world. The explanation seems to be that freedom from economic pressure makes room for an excessive development of individuality in people, who have any individuality to develop, and are not like soldiers specially trained not to think for themselves. Authors are not free from pecuniary cares, very far from it, but nobody who had any regard for his pecuniary interests would adopt literature as a profession. There are religious orders in which the rule is so completely monastic that every penny the members would own as layman belongs to the order. They may not even choose the fashion of the clothes they wear, but their daily bread is secure and wherever they go they are entitled to at least three days' hospitality from the order. I asked a friend of mine who belonged to such an order what bad effects, if any, it had on its votaries. He thought a moment and said, Well, it develops one's individuality so frightfully that at 40 years of age every member is a confirmed crank. It will be interesting to see whether communism will change the Russians into a nation of robots or a nation of cranks. Finally, I must insist that the crux of the land question is the classical theory of economic rent, dubbed by Ferdinand LaSalle, the iron law of wages. Like the roundness of the earth, it is unfortunately not obvious. It is so opposed to moral common sense and so complicated mathematically that I could find 50 experts in the tensor calculus, more easily than five statesmen who think of the land question habitually in terms of the law of rent. It is the pons anisorum of economic mathematics. Our politicians cannot draw their conclusions from it any more than Shakespeare could draw his from the Okapi or the Exolotl. They simply do not know of its existence. Karl Marx, by an absurd reference to it as Das Kapital, proved that he did not understand it. John Ruskin, after a very promising beginning as an economist, by his contrast of exchange values with human values, was stopped dead by it. Yet Marx and Ruskin had more brains and keener interest in social questions than three or four average cabinets or three or four million average voters. It is the rock on which liberal Cobdenism has been broken and socialism built in the struggle between plutocracy and democracy. We are in the thick of that struggle at present. 
And as it is a necessary part of my business to advertise my own writings, I am tempted to add that nobody who has not read my paper on the economic basis of socialism and Fabian essays should be allowed to write, speak, vote, or agitate politically in any fashion in this unhappy country. Those who suspect that the iron law is an invention of my own to bolster up socialism can qualify themselves in the orthodox academic manner by mastering, or the theory of rent, Ricardo's principles of political economy and taxation, written before socialism had found a name in England, and for the cognate theory of exchange value, the theory of political economy by Stanley Jevons, which corrected the mistake of Adam Smith, Ricardo, and Karl Marx on this subject. Chapter 3. The British Party System Practically nobody in these islands understands the party system. Britons do not know its history. They believe that it is founded in human nature and therefore indestructible and eternal. When I point out that it does not exist in our municipalities, they think I am ignorant or crazy, and assure me that there are conservative parties and progressive parties in the municipal councils and corporations just the same as in Parliament, and always will be by the immutable law of political human nature. What are the facts? Let me put them in the form of a little historical drama, as that comes easiest to me and is the most amusing. Scene, Althorpe, the residence of the Spencers, Earls of Sunderland, present King William III, aged 45, of glorious, pious, and immortal memory, and his host, Robert Spencer, the second Earl, ten years older, famous even at the courts of Charles II and James II, for his complete unscrupulousness and political ingenuity. Period 1965 Robert Your Majesty has done me a tremendous honor in visiting my humble residence. As I cannot pretend to have deserved it, I apprehend that there is some way in which I can be of service to Your Majesty. William There is. I am at my wit's end. I want advice. I am expected to save the Protestant religion in Europe from the Scarlet Woman of Rome. I am expected to save your country and my own country from the Bourbons. I am expected to do everything for everybody. And I am expected to do it all without money and without a standing army. I cannot plan my campaigns for a year ahead because this damnable British Parliament, which is elected to govern England, only wants what all Englishmen want. That is, not to be governed at all. It may leave me at any moment without a penny and without a soldier. France's best general, who has won all her battles for her, has just died and left King Louis in the hollow of my hand. And this is the moment your Parliament chooses to threaten me with a peace. It is intolerable. Damn your Parliament. I will go back to Amsterdam. Better to be a real Stoutholder than a sham king. They want liberty, these pig-headed squires and knights of the Shire. Well, let them have their liberty. Liberty to be broken on the wheel to please the Pope. Liberty to be the vassals of France. Liberty to go to the devil their own way, and not to be interfered with by any king or council. I shall fling the crown in their faces and shake the dust of England off my feet, unless you can shew me a way of making Parliament do what I tell it to do. Robert, I cannot do that. But I can show you a way to prevent Parliament from doing anything at all except vote supplies and stave off the next election as long as it can. William, can you? 
The only supplies I care about are supplies of men and money to save the Protestant North from that fat Bourbon bigot. If I cannot have them, your crown is no use to me. You can have James back again. You know where to find him, in Louis's pocket. I dare say you're in correspondence with him, double-faced schemer that you are. Robert, I am what the times have made me, and I keep in correspondence with everybody. One never knows what will happen next. But I wish I could get your majesty's mind off the Protestant North and the army for a moment. I wish I could convince you that what you have to fight here is not King Louis, but the British Parliament. William, well, do I not know it? Am I not telling you so? Robert, keep to that, your majesty. Is it agreed to that I am a schemer? William, oh, it is, it is. By God, it is. Robert, would your majesty condescend so far as to say a fairly successful schemer? William, a devilishly subtle one, I should say. What then? Robert, I have a scheme for dealing with Parliament, though I have never yet found a king subtle enough to understand it. William, try me. Robert, you, sir, are the last king on earth to understand it, but I will lay it at your royal feet. Just now you choose your ministers on their merits and capacities without regard to their parties. A Whig here, a Tory there, each in his department, which you call his cabinet and the assembly of them forming your council, which may be called your cabinet. William, just so. What fault have you to find with that? Robert, my advice to your majesty is that in the future you choose all your ministers from the same party, and that this party shall always be the party which has a majority in the House of Commons. William, you are mad. Who ever heard of such a thing? Robert, all things must have a beginning, sir. Think it over. William, I am thinking it over, and I remember what you have forgotten. Robert, what is that, your majesty? William, that the majority in the House of Commons as present is a Whig majority. Robert, I have not forgotten it, sir. You must at once get rid of all your Tory ministers and replace them by Whigs. William, but man alive, I am a Tory. Are you out of your senses? Robert, some day the Tories will have a majority and will defeat the Whig government on some measure. You will then immediately dissolve Parliament, and when the Tories come back from the general election with a majority, you will choose Tory ministers only. William, but what is the purpose of this absurdity? You talk as coolly as if you were talking sense. Why are you talking nonsense? Robert, if your majesty will only deem to what I advise, I pledge my word. William, skeptically, hmm. Robert, pardon. I should have said I pledge my reputation as a schemer. Well, I pledge it that from the moment when your majesty adopts this plan, no member of the House of Commons will ever again vote according to his principles, or his convictions, or his judgment, or his religion, or any other of his fancies. The people will think that he is voting on toleration, on peace, or war, or whenever the crown shall go to the elector of Hanover. If your sister-in-law's children continue to die, or the enclosure of commons, or billeting, or the window tax, or what not. But the real question on which he will always be voting is whether or no his party shall remain in office, or he himself have to spend half his property on another election with the chance of losing his seat if his opponent has a few thousand pounds more to spend than he. William, don't be a fool, Robert. I should be the slave of the majority no matter how they voted. And what has all this to do with the army and the money to pay for it? Robert? 
There would be only one way of voting about the war or about anything, and you could always count on it. No majority, Whig or Tory, dare vote for surrender to our natural enemies, the French, or to the Pope. William, the Pope is on my side. Robert, fortunately, only a few of us know that curious fact. Your best card in England is always no popery. William, you were laying a trap for me. You want to make the majority in the Commons the real ruler and make the monarch a puppet. And as the majority is always led by the nose of some ambitious schemer with the gift of the gab like yourself, he would be able to dictate to me as he were the king and I a nobody. Robert, I shall never be a dictator while you live, because you, sir, shall never be a nobody. But I give you this further pledge, that if you do as I advise, you will have nothing to fear from the boldest and ablest adventurer, were he Cromwell himself, or Lilburn, the leveller. He will spend half his life and most of his means in getting into Parliament, and when he at last arrives there, he will have no time to think of anything about how to get into your Majesty's cabinet. When he intrigues his way to the top of that, he will be a master of the party game and of nothing else. He will feed out of your Majesty's hand, and the people will imagine they are free because they have a Parliament. Then you can fight all Europe all the time to your heart's content. William, I don't understand it, and I don't believe it. But as I cannot go on as at present, not knowing where my next regiment or my next penny is to come from, I will try your plan until I have driven Louis back to his pigsty. And if the plan fails, I will have your head off by hook or crook. Robert, you shall, sir. It has been on my weary shoulders too long. Twenty-five years elapse, William and Sunderland, having died in the same year, having been eighteen years in their coffins, Queen Anne is dead and George I is king. Sunderland's son Charles, aged 45, is a member of the Whig government. Robert Walpole, aged 44, though a notable Whig parliamentarian, leads the opposition to the peerage bill. As it happens, they meet one morning in St. James's Park, where they are taking the air. Walpole is inclined to pass on with a wave of the hand, but Sunderland is determined to engage him in conversation and will not be shaken off. After the usual commonplaces, he comes to his point. Sunderland. I wish I could have your support for this peerage bill of mine. Frankly, I fear you will defeat me if you oppose it. Why not come to my aid? It is not a party question. We are all Whigs and all equally interested in it. Walpole. How do you make that out? Sunderland. Well, is it not as plain as a pike staff? We Whigs are above all Parliament men. To us, British liberty means the supremacy of Parliament. Parliament has two rival powers to fear, the king and the voting mob. My sainted father, a grain or two of whose political genius I may claim to have inherited, rescued us from the tyranny of the mob by the party system. He made you what you are, the greatest party leader in the world. You owe your eminence to his invention. Walpole, it costs a lot of money. Every man has his price. Sunderland. All the more reason for making sure of the cash for us and not for the mob. But what about Parliament's other rival, the king? Walpole. The king question was settled 71 years ago. Sunderland. Nay, my dear Walpole, you cannot kill kingship with a single chop of the axe in Whitehall. The restoration brought back the House of Lords and the king's power to pack it by making as many new peers as he pleased at any moment. The sole purpose of the peerage bill is to destroy that power. It will make it impossible for the king ever to make a single peer in excess of the present number. 
Surely you agree. Walpole, do I? I think not. Your sainted father persuaded King William that the party system would give him the control of Parliament, but it really gave the parliamentary majority the control of the king. That ought to suit you very well because you have the control of the majority until I get it back again, as I shall do when I defeat your bill, Sunderland. But why defeat us on this bill, which is as much in your interest as in mine? You can choose some other issue. Walpole, it is not as much in my interest as in yours. You are a peer. I am a commoner. You want to make the Lord supreme by breaking the king's power over him. I want the king to keep his power over the lords, and the commons to keep its power over the king. I can see through and through your game. I have English brains, not Dutch ones. Sunderland. You are too clever for me, I see, but consider. You are a commoner, but you will not always be a commoner. You will soon be one of us. You know there is an earldom waiting for you to stretch out your hand and take it. Walpole. Yes, provided the king keeps his power to make me an earl, your bill might deprive him of that power. Sunderland. Who? There is always a vacancy. Walpole. Even so, the earldom would be an end of me. I do not look forward to being kicked upstairs. The House of Lords is the springboard from which you plunged into politics at twenty-one. For me it is the shelf on which I shall be laid by at three score and ten. Sunderland. That may be so in your personal case, but take the larger view. Consider the interests of the country. The upper house, with all its faults, stands between England and the mob of rich commercial upstarts who want to make money out of her. Money, money, and still more money. You are an upstart. You are a country gentleman. Walpole, yes, and you are up to the neck in this commercial South Sea madness. It will be your ruin. I warn you, it will be the end of you politically within a year from now. Sunderland, you are impossible, brusquely. Good morning. He walks quickly away, leaving Walpole to finish his walk alone. Had the third Earl of Sunderland been able to humbug British Walpole as successfully as his father humbugged Dutch William, the Reform Act of 1832 might not have got through without a civil war. And when the new Labour Party took office a century later, it might have been left without representation in the Lords. As it is, the lords have always finally to give way under the threat of new creations. The last word is with the commons, in fact with the plutocracy. And that is how the matter stands at present. For vivid sketches of what the party system comes to in practice nowadays, turn to the description of it in a novel entitled Bleak House, and more thoroughly in another entitled Little Dorrit, both written by Charles Dickens ex-reporter in the gallery of the House of Commons and on the hustings. Then study the parliamentary experiences of scientific publicists like John Stuart Mill and Sidney Webb and the careers of Charles Bradlaugh, Keir Hardy, Ramsay MacDonald and all the other intransigents who made their way into Parliament and were extinguished there. Compare the sterility of Parliament in everything but postprandial oratory with the extension of municipal socialism by the municipalities where there are no cabinets, no royal selection, no general elections, except at immovably fixed dates. In short, no possibility of the party system. Nobody who does not see through Sunderland's trick and understand its history should be trusted with any parliamentary vote or function, or even allowed to mention democracy in public. 
This lands us in the unexpected conclusion that government by parliaments modeled on the British party system, far from being a guarantee of liberty and enlightened progress, must be ruthlessly discarded in the very fullest agreement with Oliver Cromwell, Charles Dickens, John Ruskin, Thomas Carlyle, Adolf Hitler, Pilsudski, Benito Mussolini, Stalin, and everyone else who has tried to govern efficiently and incorruptly by it, or who has studied its operation with a knowledge of its history and that of the Industrial Revolution. Contrast what it has done with what an efficient and entirely public-spirited government might and should have done during the two centuries of its deplorable existence, or with what the Russian Soviet government has done in 20 years, and all our Whig, Macaulayism drops dead before the facts. Nevertheless, the parliamentary growth must not be pulled up by the roots. Stalin and Hitler, the most thoroughgoing disciples of Cromwell and Dickens in this matter, are also the most convinced that government can make no great change until a long propaganda and inculcation of its principles and hopes has persuaded the mass of the people, if not to understand them critically, at least to follow the flags and echo the catchwords of its advocates. A club of political philosophers can never become a government without years of contact with the common altry through books, pamphlets, and above all, as Hitler maintains, by speeches at public meetings, now enormously reinforced by broadcast talks from the radio to the fireside. That was how the Bolsheviks, beginning as a Marxist club, became the communist government in Russia through the support of the peasants and peasant soldiers. Neither of them communists, but all more or less talked and pamphleteered and journalized into believing that the Bolsheviks were the boys to give them land and peace. In this way, too, Adolf Hitler became an autocrat in Germany, politically supported by millions of Germans who had talked and written into believing that he was, in fact, Messiah. If government is to be effective, it must be popular with the governed and generally acceptable. It must have vogue. The vogue may be unintelligent and ignorantly idolatrous, but it must exist and be worked up by agitation. I do not mean that Mr. and Mrs. Everybody should be allowed to elect Mr. and Mrs. Anybody as rulers, though our democratic politicians still seem to think so. Since women were enfranchised, we have tried this plan and found that it produces not only stagnant conservatism, but retrogression checked only by the common cause of the plutocrats it idolizes. Yet Parliament must survive as a Congress of plaintive and plangent anybodies, with unlimited license to complain, to criticize, to denounce, to demand, to suggest, to supply and discuss first-hand information, to move resolutions and to take a vote on them, in short, to keep the government abreast of public sentiment. This is very much what Parliaments and Congresses do at present. In the British House of Commons, for instance, when a war forcing the parties to coalesce suspends the party system, the backbenchers on both sides are unmuzzled and become useful. Outside Parliament, nationalist non-party public meetings and demonstrations of all sorts are convened and organized by Mr. Anybody Who Can, and his right to such activities and to the use of the streets and public places for them should be jealously preserved. For if grievances and desires are not made known fairly vociferously, ventilated, the government cannot be expected to remedy and consider them. They provide a sounding board for the initiative which seethes continually in the unofficial mass of citizens. The wisest rulers are not always the most inventive. 
They are mostly old enough to have shot their bolts inventively and lost their taste for novelty. The young man must have a platform to shout from, for a government must know what the young Calvins, Napoleons, Hitlers, and Atatürks have to say, how far they are converting the public or being hissed by it. Without such contact, the ruling sages may get dangerously out of touch with the spirit of the age. But these assemblies of agitators and petitioners must not be legislators. Such plausible pseudo-democratic devices as the legislative initiative and referendum, which offer Mr. and Mrs. Everyman a direct immediate power to bind and loose, must be ruled out, because even when they know exactly what they want, they do not know how to get it just as they may want a motor car but cannot make the blueprint, which the engineer must have before he can construct one for them. Legislation must be by the quality, not by the mob. When using such convenient terms as the quality and the mob, it must never be forgotten that they do not indicate two classes of entirely different persons. They are the same persons. In literature and drama, for instance, I belong to the quality. In mathematics, athletics, mechanics, I am one of the mob, and not only accept and obey authority, but claim a neighborly right to be told what to do by those who know better than I do. The best of us is 999% mob, and 1% quality, and the vulgar ailment called swelled head afflicts only those whose minds are so preoccupied with the few things they know that there is no room left for the innumerable things they don't know. I do some things very well but my self-esteem is crushed by the multitude of things at which I am a hopeless duffer. In championing the rights of the mob, I champion my own. Who is to choose and appoint the quality? At present, the king is supposed to where there is a king, or the president where there is a president. But nobody believes that the king of Italy had any real alternative when he chose Benito Mussolini, Field Marshal Hindenburg when he chose ex-corporal Hitler, or Queen Victoria when she chose Palmerston or Gladstone. Even the United States president, whom has more freedom to choose than any king because he is himself chosen by plebiscite, cannot choose Mr. Anybody. He must choose among the prominent, and prominence is won by self-assertion, taking advantage of favorable circumstances, and the chapter of accidents, so that we may say that our rulers are partly self-chosen and partly the result of Darwinian natural selection, that is, of pure luck. In this way, we sometimes hit on great leaders like Lincoln, Brigham Young, Ferdinand LaSalle, or Camel Atterturk, to say nothing of living examples, all of whom were self-asserted. They gained their following through the idolatry produced by the force of their personalities, rather than by their wisdom. For many energetic and ambitious persons have obtained prominence and power with very little wisdom. What about the periods, sometimes very long ones, during which no such leaders arise, and the business of the state has nevertheless to be carried on without a moment's pause? Such government is not impossible under feudalism, where authority is legally hereditary, nor under plutocracy, where it is virtually hereditary to a great extent. Under both, dunderheads are not only not excluded, but very frequently selected as rulers. When they have an established system, which we call a constitution to work to, they can make shift for long periods without wreckage. But the fundamental answer is that nature does, as a matter of fact, constantly supply a sufficient percentage of persons with the requisite mental power. The problem is how to select the capable, for the capable are always there. In ancient Rome, 
the Antonine emperors chose their successors with much better results than under succession by heredity. But except under conditions of considerable activity which brings rulers to the test of battle, the ablest successor is not always obvious. Even so able a ruler as Cromwell could think of nobody better than his son to succeed him as Lord Protector. And the result was a complete and almost instantaneous failure. Napoleon's attempt to found a Bonapartist dynasty was a ludicrous failure. A dynasty may select a dynasty as when the Welsh Tudors selected the Scottish Stuarts to govern England. But the fourth Stuart king was a simpleton and was ousted by a Dutchman who married his daughter. We must get rid of the tradition of hereditary altogether. We have only to study the lives not of great men, but of their fathers, mothers, and sons, and daughters, to learn that political ability is inherited in such infinitesimal installments that an extraordinary parent may have very ordinary children, and so capriciously that a very ordinary couple produce a genius. In a democracy, we should all start from zero, no matter who or what our relatives. Our present notions are disordered and inconsistent. A proposal to make the presidency of the United States of America hereditary would shock the Americans. Yet they take it as a matter of course that the management of a business should descend from father to son. We should not dream of allowing the king to dictate what the nation shall do ten years after his death. Yet we allow private citizens to make fantastic, unjust, bigoted, or even spitefully wicked disposals of their possessions after their deaths by will, and give these wills the force of law. But we do not make a man a judge because his father was a judge, nor give him a diploma as a qualified surgeon because his father had one, nor put him in command of the army because his father was a field marshal. A century ago, army officers... Burgoyne and Wellington, for instance, claimed promotion as a purchasable privilege of their rank in the aristocracy, and would have regarded a claim based on successful services as the act of a cad. But today, any other claim would be ridiculed as the pretension of a snob. These inconsistencies and contradictions are the accidents of an imperfectly organized society, in which people have to be allowed to do what they please with their property when there is no other control over it. As social organization progresses and develops and transactions that are now private become more and more public affairs, conditions now undreamt of will be attached to our personal activities and liberties. We shall soon get used to them, and meanwhile, if we don't like them, we must lump them. Since we must give authority to those who are capable of it, if we are to save civilization, our pseudo-democratic tradition of government by committees and their majorities brings us sharply against the fact that majority rule is unnatural, because capable rulers are always a minority. Though even given fair play, nature produces enough of them to give the ruled their choice. It also destroys responsibility. A minister of state who accepts and undertakes a public duty on the understanding that if he fails, he will be impeached and possibly shot, or at least discharged and discredited, is a responsible minister. But a minister who has only to do what he can persuade a majority in Parliament or in committee to agree to has no responsibility, and neither has anyone else, because majorities cannot be shot except by their own consent, nor can they be demoted, as they have no rank. One of the best descriptions of this no thoroughfare is to be found in the autobiography of Adolf Hitler, entitled Mein Kampf. 
When he began his work of organizing National Socialism in Germany, in 1919, at the age of 30, he found himself a member of a committee of six nobodies with hardly a spare shilling in their collective treasury. Being entirely irresponsible, they could do nothing but talk to one another. Adolf's six years training as a soldier had taught him that bodies of men cannot be made effectively active without authority, combined with responsibility, neither of which is possible under majority government. The fact we conceal from ourselves by the simple and familiar expedient of calling it responsible government instead of irresponsible government. The Fuhrer was not imposed on by this sort of humbug. Hard experience and the ability to learn from experience had taught him better. When he was made chairman of a committee, he stayed away from the committee meetings and acted while the rest talked. When he became head of the movement on personal merits, or demerits if you dislike him, and had to appoint a staff, he gave his officers military authority and held them militarily responsible for their use of it. When he had risen in 14 years by this method from being an obscure last recruit to a little knot of six persons to being the official leader of 60 millions and chancellor for life of the German realm, he kept up his vocal propaganda by occasionally making speeches through the microphone to the 60 millions from the Reichstag. But the Reichstag did not govern. The authority and responsibility were the Führers, and in his hands and on his head were real authority and responsibility. After five years of this, the 60 million still adored him and made him commander-in-chief of their fighting forces. Let us take this living contemporary instance as the extreme to which authority and responsibility can be pushed in practice. The opposite extreme is represented by the British Parliament in peacetime, when authority, responsibility, and activity are reduced to the minimum, and a fortnight's work takes about 30 years unless a war forces Parliament to abandon the party system and make desperate efforts to do 30 years' work in a fortnight. Our problem is to find the most eligible degree between these two extremes. We must reject the Hitler plan because though it works successfully in the army, it gives one man more authority and responsibility than one man can bear. If he is weak, he is corrupted by his power. If he is strong, he is demented by it. And like Alexander, Hitler, and Napoleon, tries to add the world to his dominions, thus becoming at worst a scourge and a tyrant, and at best an explorer and adventurer like Julius Caesar or William the Conqueror. The more conquests and adventures and social experiments he undertakes, the more he has to delegate and distribute his authority, for lack of time to be everywhere and attend to everything. His sub-governors get corrupted or demented in their degree, and finally the system becoming intolerable provokes a revolution or a laissez-faire reaction towards anarchy. Whether the supreme boss is Cromwell, Louis XIV, the Kaiser, or Herr Hitler, the brooms sweep clean when they are new, but when they are spoiled or worn out, the place becomes an Ogean stable. What safeguards are available against these contingencies? Obviously, to begin with, election and re-election of rulers for sufficiently short periods to keep them conscious of their dependence on the submissive approval of their subjects. Take the case of the President of the United States of North America. Although his office was brought into existence by a successful revolution against the tyranny of the British government, personified in King George III, he was, on Hitlerian principles, given more absolute authority than King George ever possessed. No defeat in committee or Congress can remove him, but his authority lasts only four years. Shelley's description of George III as an old, mad, blind, despised, and dying king can never apply to him, 
If any act of his is unconstitutional, there is an appeal against it to the Supreme Court. In certain matters, he has to obtain the consent of at least two-thirds of the Senate, which must, for instance, approve his choice of the secretaries, who form his council. The separate states of the Union have governors who are similarly authorized and restricted, similarly responsible and parliament-ridden, trusted and mistrusted, free in respect of religion, sex, and color, and limited by age and nationality, place and length of residence. Altogether, a queer jumble of precautions against tyranny with measures to provide the security of law and order. In future, we shall have to put more brains into our constitution-making. We must throw our idolization of Parliament and our slogans about British and American liberty and Britons never being slaves into the dustbin. Yet we shall discover that what we need is not only to reform our old Parliament, but to establish several new ones. Political decisions must not be the whims or phobias of men demented by absolute authority, like those of Nero or Sarpaul, to say nothing of later examples with no remedy short of their assassination by their bodyguards or courtiers. Such decisions must be made in council with competent assessors in the light of the best advice and widest information available. We shall need regional councils, vocational councils, industrial councils, cooperative consumers councils, financial councils, educational councils, planning and coordinating councils, councils for supranational affairs, all in constant session, as well as parliamentary congresses, at not too frequent intervals, to ventilate national grievances and contribute any political suggestions that Mr. Everyman may be capable of. This is what it has to come to in ultra-democratic Russia, under the inexorable necessities of human nature and circumstances. The Russian system is not really a revolutionary departure from our own. We are governed more by trade unions, cooperative societies, professional associations of doctors and lawyers, the judicial bench, the committees of the Privy Council, the bureaucracy, and by boards of all sorts than by the House of Parliament. The Treasury wields the power of the purse far more constantly and potently than the House of Commons, and the Foreign Office declares war and sends us helplessly to the trenches without consulting Parliament which is simply told next day as in the Four Years' War, or an hour too late as in the present war, what has been irrevocably done over its head and behind its back. The abdication of King Edward VIII was arranged and consummated without a word to the House of Commons or its constituencies. The prison commissioners shut the public out of their prisons and can make them much more cruel than concentration camps as Dartmoor is at their pleasure. A change from our system to the Russian system would be no change at all as far as the multiplicity of governing bodies is concerned. Such bodies cannot be abolished. They are necessary and should be controlled and coordinated in the interest of the general welfare and staffed from panels of competent and responsible persons. At present, they are a jumble of casual growths, often unpopular because some of them are out of date, led by party politicians and operated by petty tyrants, ignorant halfwits or incurable stick-in-the-muds, who are virtually irremovable. But they need not be. In Russia, the governing bodies are purged and the slackers liquidated. The word covers shooting in grave cases, pretty promptly when they are found out. What the Russians can do, we can do. 
The need for qualification, responsibility, and coordination asserts itself in voluntary association and commercial enterprise as urgently as in state business. Capitalist, fascist, and communist states need them equally, though only in communist states is it possible to prevent their corruption by private interests. But in any case, their introduction need not involve a catastrophic upset of all our institutions. The well-to-do citizen, who mostly imagines that national institutions, being those of his beloved country, must be already perfect, would hardly be conscious of the change. At most, he would echo the French proverb, the more it changes, the more it remains the same. Dreamers of new worlds should not forget this. If they do, they will be heavily disillusioned. As the need is not a new one and clearly involves an educational system and a testing system, it will be asked why liberal tradition runs so strongly against tests of all sorts, that we have been occupied during the last few centuries more with their abolition than their enforcement or introduction. The answer is that the tests have so far failed to establish a quality of opportunity and leave the career open to the talents, both of which conditions are essential in democracy. Some of them were amazingly irrelevant. For instance, the restriction of members of the College of Physicians to members of the Church of England. The British king must be Protestant and must repudiate the Roman Church at his coronation explicitly and all the Oriental creeds implicitly. Though most of his subjects are Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Roman Catholics, atheists, or agnostics, each regarding the others as heretics, heathens, pagans, idolaters, or any equally disparaging epithet. Jews and atheists were formally excluded from the British Parliament. Clergymen of the Church of England are excluded from the House of Commons, though its prelates sit in the House of Lords. The whole business became so absurd that the abolition of tests and the opening of all the professions and public services to dissenters, Jews, atheists, and sectarians of all sorts, not positively criminal, like the thuggy and the voodoo, got deeply rooted in the liberal program. Unfortunately, the reaction against the religious tests produced an anti-clerical movement which is reducing itself to absurdity as completely as the religious tests did. In Russia, declared militant atheists only are admitted to the Communist Party, the only tolerated party, which virtually nominates the Soviets. There is nothing new in such exclusion. It is the system of the Catholic Church and, indeed, of all the churches. Its effect was that the Russian Communist Party, aiming at the complete elimination of priestcraft, made itself a priesthood. To eliminate orthodoxy, it set up the most intolerant orthodoxy in the world. To get rid of the religious orders, it instituted the League of the Godless, with medals of its emblems, just like the medals of the seven sorrows of the Sacred Heart. You may see them oftener in Russia than scapulars in Ireland. Europe, having led the way from the ages of faith to the ages of scientific skepticism and humanism, is finding that nothing can save her civilization but a new democratic faith, intolerant not only of rival creeds but of rival parties. Conservative England, convinced by the arguments of Macaulay, to its credit, not only enfranchised the Jews but made a Jew prime minister. But Germany, carrying forward liberalism to national socialism under proletarian leadership, finds itself not only persecuting Jews, but exterminating them. It is always so. Popular liberalism, which is in practice policed anarchism, throws government out through the door only to see it come back through the window. Despotic kings and tsars executed as such are replaced by lord protectors, by presidents and chancellors, 
by prime ministers, leaders, doggas, and deuces whose little fingers are thicker than the loins of the monarchs. Liberalism and free thought, far from finding their culmination and final triumph in socialism, will have a losing fight at first under the dictatorship of the proletariat. But they are not dead. They are only in a cataleptic trance and will resurge mightily when socialism produces the leisure, without which there can be no real liberty. And people supporting themselves comfortably on 24 hours work a week demand freedom of enterprise and freedom of thought in their leisure. Now let us leave democracy at large for a while and return to our examination of parliaments as they exist in Britain today. Chapter 4. The Parliaments of the Poor If what is wrong with the House of Commons is the party system, and what is right with the municipalities is their freedom from the party system, need we do anything more than abolish the party system in Parliament and leave the municipalities as they are? Unfortunately, the municipalities are paralyzed by a tyranny as effective as and more degrading than the party system. To wit, the poverty of the rate-paying majorities who elect the municipal councillors. It defeats every object of the theoretical democracy to which they owe their votes. Let me describe a typical scene in which I myself played a part. One of my first experiences as a member of a London vestry, arranging the civic life of a quarter of a million people, was a sitting at which the rates had to be struck for the current year. The committee in charge of finance put before us statements of the cost of the public services involved and the rate necessary to cover it. I, being a greenhorn, naturally expected that this would be the rate recommended by the committee. But no. When the needed rate was 14 pence in the pound, the recommended rate was a shilling. No explanation of this deliberate plunge into insolvency being forthcoming. I moved an amendment to make the rate 14 pence. The effect was appalling. A bearded elderly vestryman near me cried like an infant, and with his tears falling fast on the table, reproached me for having no bowels of compassion for the poor. The less desperate or better-off members maintained a gloomy silence. They knew that I was acting reasonably, but they voted against me so unanimously that I never meddled in the rate question again, but left them to their doom, whatever that might be. It came soon enough. A local government act was passed, which changed the vestry into a borough council and obliged us to have our accounts audited by the local government board instead of by ourselves. It was discovered that our bank account was overdrawn by £70,000, which the new auditor, without even saying, if you have tears, prepare to shed them now, ordered us to pay off immediately at the cost of a rate which would have turned us all out at the next election. I forget how it was settled. As I was absent at that time, I believe our abject entreaties gained us time enough to spread the sacrifice over some years. Even as it was, the rate jumped up by sixpence in the pound, and the ratepayers' candidates were swept from power in the next election. Now, this matter of the rates was so simple that it would be absurd to conclude that the difference between my action and that of my bearded colleague who wept and raved at me was the difference between a high political intelligence and a relatively low one. He could not write plays and books, but he knew as well as I did that a shilling could not buy 14 pence worth of goods. The difference was that he was a poor man living in a state of chronic pecuniary emergency and I, a securely rich one, practically unconscious of the rates except for the few moments in every year during which I was signing a check for them. 
without troubling to look at the poundage. Had I been as poor as he, I should no doubt have wept as he wept and voted as he voted. My conclusion was that if a property qualification of a thousand a year had been enforced both for vestrymen and voters, the vestry would have been quite solvent, more efficient, and far less at the mercy of its officials, who despised it and regarded its meetings as a nuisance, which should be reduced to two a year or less. The same members who sat silent in stunned assent when they had to vote for an item of £20,000 for electrical machinery would hold all night sittings to rage furiously over an item of three and sixpence for refreshments. Only assemblies of persons who are economically carefree, chosen by constituents equally unintimidated, can be looked to for the imagination and daring which modern public business demands. And let it not be supposed that Parliaments is free from the dread of poverty because the majority of its members can lay their hands on a hundred pounds more easily than an average rate payer of five. Under capitalism, that independence is a product of proletarian poverty. At present, the newspapers are printing family budgets in which the income is 40 shillings a week and the rent 14. Yet all the complaints are of the smallness of the income, not of the enormity of the share of it taken by the landlord through his rent collector, backed by the bailiffs, the brokers, the police, and the whole British Army, Navy, and Air Force if the rent is refused. Every purchase made out of the remaining shillings has to cover the rent paid by the vendor. The riches of the members of Parliament and the peers consist of the 14 shillings plus the sums by which the workers' wages fall short of the prices obtained by their employers for the results of their labour. The legislators can cure this relative poverty of their constituents only by ruining themselves, unless they possess the industrial genius needed to increase the productivity of the labour, sufficiently to feather both nests at one stroke. When the possibilities in this direction have been exhausted, there is nothing for the proletariat but slavery mitigated only by doles to keep alive the goose that lays the golden eggs, or a complete political capsize establishing the dictatorship of the proletariat. Meanwhile, the rich dread poverty even more than the poor who are used to it. Even millionaires can never be sure that they will not die paupers. Their incomes may be extinguished by bankruptcy, by discoveries and inventions, or even when all the securities are gilt-edged by the enormous taxation and inflation involved by modern wars. The dread of this makes continual preoccupation with their private interests compulsory and makes perfect public integrity suicidal. Both rich and poor have common cares and opposed interests. This is the result of plutocracy, and the remedy is democracy. We have just seen that in our central and local parliaments, dominated by plutocracy and poverty, which mathematicians may call negative plutocracy, democracy is inevitably defeated. Let us look farther into the matter. Chapter 5. Democracy. The Next Step. Democracy means the organization of society for the benefit and at the expense of everybody indiscriminately, and not for the benefit of a privileged class. A nearly desperate difficulty in the way of its realization is the delusion that the method of securing it is to give votes to everybody, which is the one certain method of defeating it. Adult suffrage kills it dead. High-minded and well-informed people desire it, but they are in a negligible minority at the polling stations. Mr. Everybody, as Voltaire called him, and we must now include Mrs. Everybody and Miss Everybody, 
Far from desiring the great development of public organization and governmental activity, which democracy involves, has a dread of being governed at all, an intense dislike of being taxed, and a strong objection to being dictated to by a government official even when the alternative is to be enslaved and plundered by people like himself without responsibility or authority. His mind, when it is capable of ranging beyond his personal family and business affairs, is full of the romance of war and chivalry, and his imagination with hero worship of his favorite platform orator, or of famous military and naval commanders who have slaughtered the greatest number of foreigners. He is for any negative law that stands between him and the power of the state, or Magna Carta, habeas corpus, trial by jury, freedom of his own speech and his own newspaper and the public meetings of his own party, which he reluctantly extends to other people provided they share his views and preferences. But a hint at any positive legislation sends him rushing to the polling station in his irresistible numbers to vote against it. Only by humbugging him to the top of his bent can he be governed at all. It has therefore always been necessary to humbug him more or less. But to the extent to which he has been able to make Parliament really representative of him, his enfranchisement has made democracy impossible. With all his prejudices and superstitions and romantic illusions, he knows himself too well to vote for himself. All the same, he would resent having his vote taken from him. It remains to be seen how far the handful of real Democrats can humbug him into voting for his own emancipation. In 1920, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, our leading authorities on the subject, demonstrated very convincingly in a book entitled A Constitution for the Socialist Commonwealth that a single parliament, even if not party-ridden, could not possibly govern a civilization as complicated as ours. Jack of all trades is master of none. The Webbs proposed the establishment of two parliaments, one political, the other social. Their arguments and the facts were unanswerable. Consequently, the problem of how not to do it was solved as usual by simply taking no notice of the proposal. Now it is easy to ignore a book or its writers, and if it were not for the facts, this would be the end of the affair. But if the facts are ignored too long, things will begin to break. And one of the facts is that if all the problems of society, political, commercial, legal, cultural, and artistic are dealt with by a single body, and the vote in the election of such a body is therefore to be omnibus, vote cast every five years or so by Mr. Everyman, he is much to be pitied. Conceive his perplexities at a general election. I have just, he cries been convinced by the Labour candidate that if the mines are nationalized, I shall be able to buy my coals for half of what I am paying at present. But he has promised Smith next door, and he will vote for revision of the prayer book. And I couldn't stand that. Flat atheism, I call it. The Conservative candidate says he will die in the last ditch in defense of the prayer book. But he owns half the coal mines in Durham and won't hear of cheapening coal. And they tell me he is an Anglo-Catholic which is no better to my mind than puppery, for I, thank God, am a staunch Protestant. I agree to all the liberal candidate says about liberty and getting rid of all those snooping inspectors coming and interfering in my business with their regulations and government control and all that. But the man is a Republican and has to check to say so. And I am for king and country. The Independent seems to me the most likable of the lot, but he wants to have a negotiated peace and makes all of us the slaves of Hitler. 
Besides, he hasn't a dog's chance against the party men, and I don't like having my vote wasted. There was a communist up last time, and he forfeited his deposit. Robinson voted for him, and I tell you, he did look a fool. Fortunately, this is a free country, and I needn't vote unless I like. I just won't vote at all. At the club, each chap will think that I voted for his pet candidate. Anyhow, this election business is all rot. They get your vote for one thing and then do just the opposite once they're in. Look at the gold standard. Look at peace with honor. At Munich. Pa. The proposal of the webs would get the prayer book and the coal mines into separate compartments. And a good many other questions along with them. But the success of the new Soviet system in Russia has now carried the problem far beyond solution by two parliaments. Mr. Everyman in Russia has dozens of governing bodies to divide his votes between, and the candidates are people whom he knows, and whose sons could marry his daughters or his daughters their sons without loss of caste. Mr. British Everyman thinks he is governed by two authorities only, the House of Commons, elected by his vote, and the House of Lords, which he hopes will soon be abolished, though it is far more representative of him coming into the world as it does like himself by the accident of birth. Really, he is governed by as many authorities as the Russians, by his trade union or professional association, by his cooperative society, by his employer's federation, by his church, by his bankers, by his employers, and by his landlords. Most of these have practically irresponsible powers over him to which no responsible State Department dare pretend. The common man can be deprived of his employment and turned loose on the street to starve or live on the dole by his private employer without reason given or remedy available. The doctor can be disqualified and ruined, the lawyer struck off the rolls, the priest or parson unfrocked, the stockbroker or jobber shut out of the exchange, if he runs counter to regulations to which his consent has never been asked. He may not obtain registration as a qualified member of any profession or skilled trade except through examinations and apprenticeships over which he has no control. The dictatorships of the trades and professions make short work of his aspirations to liberty. They tax him and control him at every turn. Yet any proposal to bring these controllers under state control sets him shrieking that his liberty is being destroyed. He sings at the top of his voice that he will never... Be a slave because, having no experience of real freedom, he does not know what it is. It is not, however, the multiplicity of the authorities that is objectionable. On the contrary, the more separate and specialized authorities we have, the more we escape from the ridiculous one man, one vote of the party system to the democratic ideal of one subject, one vote. But there must be some public control of authorities to secure the welfare of the community against the scandalous tyrannies they become in the absence of any such control. And if democracy is to be a central principle, it must have a central organ. The organ may have a hundred stops, each with its separate row of pipes, but somebody must play the organ, and though Mr. Everyman may be quite incapable of handling the keyboard, whoever does handle it must play music that Mr. Everyman likes, or someday he will smash up the organ kill the organist, and starve for want of music unless and until a new organ is built, and a new organist found both perhaps very inferior to the old ones. If Mr. Everyman builds it and tries to play it, it will certainly be worse. 
If he is not consulted in the affair, it may be used against his interests instead of democratically. And as in that case, he will not like the music. The new organ will finally share the fate of the old one. Is there any way of avoiding this recurring deadlock and stalemate? Of course there is. But before I put it into Mr. E's head, I must clear out a good deal of rubbish to make room for it, and I must do justice to the gentleman to begin with. In a recent fiction by Mr. H.G. Wells, Mr. E is represented by a certain Mr. Albert Edward Tuller. In a recent play of mine, Miss E is represented by a certain Miss Begonia Brown. Both are of the poorer middle class. Tuller is a narrow-minded and ignorant idiot for whose powers of comprehension Kentish Town is too large. Begonia wins prizes at country council schools and has boundless self-respect. But her ardent patriotism consists in her readiness to die in defense of her native Camberwell against Peckham. Londoners will get the measure of Tuller and Begonia from this, but for others I must explain that Kentish Town, Camberwell, and Peckham are only contiguous suburbs of the same metropolis. Begonia becomes the first female prime minister, too late for inclusion in the play. Now, it is obviously not true that all the inhabitants of London, much less of the British Isles, are Tullers and Begonias. The mind of H.G. Wells is larger than Tullers, and Bernard Shaw is more cosmopolitan than Begonias. Behind Wells and Shaw is a considerable class of persons intelligent enough to buy their books and enjoy reading them, or at least criticizing them. They are at present only an intelligentsia, but they contain material for a genuine aristocracy ready to our hand. But as they are much less numerous than the enfranchised Tullers and Begonias, and are misunderstood, mistrusted, dreaded, and hated by them besides being despised as intellectuals in the richer commercial suburbs and tolerated by the upper ten only as superior servants and entertaining geniuses, society clowns, outside politics, it is impossible for them to be elected to leading positions in public affairs. Also, as their ability enables them to win a tolerably comfortable income and position by private practice, they have every inducement to keep aloof from the vulgar turmoil and squalor of politics and form a private aristocracy, letting the suffering proletariat and the political plutocracy go hang. Thus, the utmost refinements and elegancies of civilization were enjoyed by the French intelligentsia in the 18th century and by the mandarins of China in the 19th whilst criminals broken on the wheel or sliced into a thousand pieces were presented as edifying public spectacles in the streets of Paris and Peking. Today, though, when indicted persons refuse to plead, as members of the Irish Republican Army usually do, we no longer lay them on the flags of the prison yard and pile weights on them until they are pressed to death or consent to plead, and though, when we sentence a prisoner to receive ninety lashes, we call them ten but inflict them with a nine-tailed cat, our criminal code is still horribly cruel and thoughtless, and could be called brutal and barbarous if any animal or primitive tribe could be convicted of maintaining such institutions as Dartmoor or Mountjoy convict prisons. Thirteen years in Dartmoor is much more cruel than breaking on a wheel. But as it is out of sight of the intellectuals, they can ignore it, and they do. There is one public service which forces them into contact with it, jury service. As one of the intelligentsia myself, I was a subject to this until old age disqualified me. Far from claiming it as a right, I strained every artifice to keep my name off the jury list, 
successfully as it happened. In this, I was thoroughly representative of my class. The intellectuals are not forbidden to take part in the political life of the nation. They are only too anxious to keep out of it. Occasionally, some notorious murder moves them to a squeamish protest against capital punishment. But the moment the Home Secretary is induced to reprieve the murderer and hides him or her for life in Dartmoor or some similar inferno, they are quite satisfied and the case drops out of the newspapers forever. The evolutionary appetite, however, is not subject to adult suffrage. It specializes a proportion of the intellectuals for commonwealth affairs just as it specializes people for poetry, painting, music, law, medicine, religion, fighting, sport, and crime. From Confucius and Lao Tse, Socrates and Plato, Jesus, Gautama, and Mohammed, Luther, Knox, and Calvin, to Robert Owen, LaSalle, Marx, Engels, Bentham, Richard Wagner, Ruskin, Morris, Stuart Mill, the Fabians, Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin, the apostolic succession of revolutionists has never ceased. But though they have converted little congregations and even been adopted as the founders of civilizations like Christendom and Islam, or governed cities for a while like Calvin in Geneva. The changes being only nominal, the new governments are as savage as the old. The worshippers of Jesus established the Spanish Inquisition and waged the Thirty Years' War in his name, and the militant Nazis of Germany imagine themselves good Nietzscheans and are led by a disciple of Wagner, whose last word to the world was wisdom through compassion. It remains true, as I have said somewhere, that the conversion of savages to Christianity is really a conversion of Christianity to savagery. I do not see any way out of this difficulty as long as our Democrats persist in assuming that Mr. Everyman is omniscient as well as ubiquitous and refuse to reconsider the suffrage in the light of facts and common sense. How much control of the government does Mr. Everyman need to protect himself against tyranny? How much is he capable of exercising without ruining himself and wrecking civilization? Are these questions really unanswerable? I think not. I grant that Mr. E must be empowered to choose his rulers, were it only to save him from being ruled unbearably well. But how much choice should he have? May he choose a golden calf, as he did in the Sinai Desert, or a cat, as he did in Egypt, or a tribal idol, as the sect called Jehovah's Witnesses now do, or Titus Otis or Lord George Gordon, or Horatio Bottomley, to say nothing of idols now living. Surely not. We might as well let an infant school loose among the poisons in a druggist shop, or unbar the cages of all the animals in the zoo. There's quite enough choice between qualified people to give Mr. E all the control that is good for him. This is so obvious that when democracy began with parliaments, we guarded them by a property qualification which secured at least some elementary education for our legislators. But they abused their power so disastrously in their class interest that it was discarded in favor of no qualification at all, which was a jump out of the frying pan and into the fire which is consuming us at present. It is a matter of simple natural history that humans vary widely in political competence. They vary not only from individual to individual, but from age to age in the same individual. In the face of this flat fact, it is silly to go on pretending that the voice of the people is the voice of God. When Voltaire said that Mr. Everybody was wiser than Mr. Anybody, he had never seen adult suffrage at work. It takes all sorts to make a world, 
and to maintain civilization, some of these sorts have to be killed like mad dogs, whilst others have to be put in command of the state. Until the differences are classified, we cannot have a scientific suffrage. And without a scientific suffrage, every attempt at democracy will defeat itself as it has always done. Classification, then, is the first step towards genuine democracy. And here, accordingly, it must have a chapter to itself. Chapter 6. Knowing Our Places Many years ago, I began investigating classification by asking H. M. Stanley, the journalist who explored Africa in search of Livingstone, what proportion of his men he found capable of leadership, when he had to leave them in charge of his expedition for a while. He replied instantly and positively, 5%. I pressed him as to whether this was an offhand guess or an exact figure. He said again without hesitation that it was an exact figure. Taking it as such for want of a better estimate, we may postulate that out of our population of 40 millions, 2 million persons are capable of some degree of government. Immediately the question arises, what degree? Stanley found that 1 in 20 could be left in charge of his African command. But if that job needed a Julius Caesar, he certainly would not have had his choice of one man in every 20. Or even one man in a thousand. But one man in the whole known world. Which is another way of saying that he would not have had a choice at all. Pope Julius II could have found plenty of painters to decorate the Sistine Chapel. But only one Michelangelo. Our first King James had dozens of playwrights at his disposal, but only one Shakespeare. And after Shakespeare's death, his degree became extinct. James II could not have found a Shakespeare for love or money. Between these supreme cases in which a single superman occurs one in 15 human lifetimes, or so, and Stanley's everyday five percenters lie many vocations and many degrees of ability in them. I dare not claim to be the best playwright in the English language, but I believe myself to be one of the best ten, and maybe therefore perhaps be classed as one of the best hundred. Outside his natural vocation, the greatest genius may be simply feeble-minded. In the theatre, I am a highly efficient person. In an astronomical observatory, I should be sacked at the end of the first week, or else set to dust and polish the telescopes, which I should do worse than any good housemaid. Now, the success of any business depends on its operators being vocationally the right persons in their natural places. For a college of music cannot be successfully conducted by a tone-deaf staff, nor an academy of painting by a colorblind one as some experiments in that direction have proved. Quite the biggest and most difficult business in the world is the organization and administration of a modern democratic state, which must find a remunerative use for every citizen and never put him off with a dole. Managed by the right persons in the wrong places or the wrong persons in the right places, it will get into a disastrous mess and have to be rescued forcibly by some Napoleonic adventurer foolish enough to be ambitious yet able enough, as Mussolini put it, to clean up an Augean stable. And here we must make another distinction. Sixty years ago, walking one Sunday in Hyde Park, where any social reformer or religious apostle may collect the crowd by simply stopping and addressing the empty air, I came upon a certain Captain Wilson, now I fear forgotten, who was preaching a gospel which he called comprehensionism, and urging his listeners to become comprehensionists. 
but a world of comprehenders might and probably would be a world of duffers. Comprehension is quite distinct from executive faculty. The men of action, skilled and ready in practice, are seldom comprehensive thinkers. The world is full of active solicitors who have no sense of law, doctors for whom biology might as well not exist, priests without a ray of religion, journalists thoughtlessly repeating stock phrases in customary collocations, boards of directors who do nothing but what was done last time, skilled workmen who know little more about their jobs than the machines they are handling, as well as chancellors of the exchequer who, convinced that the more a country exports, the richer it is hold that the ideal height of a prosperity for a nation is to produce nothing for its own consumption and everything for foreign trade. I think it was Palmerston, our greatest secretary for foreign affairs, who said, If you wish to be thoroughly misinformed about a country, consult a man who has lived there for 30 years and speaks the language like a native. Utopians must not conclude that nobody should be allowed to practice any trade or profession which he or she does not thoroughly understand. They might as well hold that a baby should not be put to its mother's breast until it is completely instructed in food metabolism. A great part of our business has to be done by people who do not understand what they are doing, but can do it without understanding it. They may or may not be doing it in the best way, but it has to be done somehow. And the worst way is better than no way at all. For example, parents at present have to see to it that their families are fed. Accordingly, some most affectionate mothers feed their infants on gin and red herrings, and their husbands on butcher's meat and fermented or distilled drinks in the full persuasion, that without these they could not keep up their strength. They should be taught better in the elementary schools, but meanwhile children and husbands must be fed somehow. Red herrings and gin, beef and beer may be worse than cereals, vegetables and soft drinks, but they are better than nothing. Instruction, however, is limited by the capacity to digest it, also by the time at the learner's disposal and the necessity for choosing the most profitable subjects to employ it on. The most gifted genius cannot study everything. I'm a competent playwright, but nothing would make a competent mathematician of me. I can manipulate a calculating machine, and I dare say I could be taught to use a table of logarithms, just as I use a ready reckoner but my time is better employed in writing plays and books. Everything else I must leave undone or get somebody else to do it for me. Or, if I do it myself, do it by rule of thumb, using the method without pretending to understand it. In literature and drama, I am a celebrity. In an aeroplane factory, I should be a mental defective. When I contemplate what I know and have done, not that I ever do, I have a high opinion of myself. When I contemplate what I don't know and cannot do, which I am often forced to do, I feel as a worm might if he knew how big the world is. But please do not infer that being a hopeless duffer mathematically and mechanically, I cannot comprehend mathematics and physics in all their immense democratic importance. Lightning calculators and great inventors may have no such comprehension. Newton was so great a mathematician that when he invented the infinitesimal calculus, he kept it a secret as an unprofessional dodge until Leibniz invented it also, and was highly praised for it. Yet Newton was as credulous as a child in the nursery in his elaborate study of historical chronology. It is by confusing the practitioner with the comprehensionist that we have come to believe in England that metaphysicians and philosophers are fools, and practical men safe guides. 
Certainly, the practical men know where they are, but not always whither we are going, whereas the thinkers who know whither we are going do not always know where we are. Democracy will have to reckon not only the differences of vocation, but with degrees of ability within that vocation. When child welfare came to be systematically studied, it was soon found that the author of the popular song, They Say There Is No Other Can Take the Place of Mother, knew very little about mothers and children. On the other hand, when William Morris said that whoever may be the best people to be in charge of the nation's children, there can be no doubt that the parents are the very worst, he was overstating his case. It is always necessary to overstate a case startingly to make people sit up and listen to it and to frighten them into acting on it. I do this myself, habitually and deliberately. When certain people took up the welfare of children as a neglected branch of vital public work, they were not all Mrs. Particles. The facts soon forced them to classify mothers in three divisions. A. The mothers who could bring up their own children, or other people's, better than anyone else could or would. B. The mothers who could do it well enough with some instruction and guidance. And C. The mothers who were totally and incorrigibly incapable of rearing children properly at all. This last including not only those who bring their children up to be thieves and prostitutes, or who are uncontrollably violent and cruel, but those who spoil children by being stupidly or jealously fond of them. There are also to be considered for the moment the parents who are so poor that they are forced to set their children to earn a little money by long hours of drudgery instead of having them duly educated and recreated. This, however, is a matter to be dealt with by factory acts and education acts, or by a better distribution of the nation's income. The rough threefold division into average, superaverage, and subaverage is a national division, and will persist in spite of any development of factory legislation or socialism. As criticism of our institutions has spread and concerned itself less and less with individual grievances and more and more with social organization, a similar rough division into ordinary persons, blockheads, and geniuses has cropped up in all directions. In the medical profession, in which a practitioner with an obsolete diploma conferred 50 years ago may undertake the most modern operations or apply treatments long discarded in the medical schools, we find that the doctors are like the mothers. Most of them are able to get through difficult cases with guidance from consultants who form a professional aristocracy at the top and a percentage at the bottom who should never be allowed into a sick person's room, as their presence there greatly diminishes the patient's chance of recovery. There are Old Bailey barristers who are famous for the number of their clients who, however innocent, have been hanged, preachers whose sermons, however brief, are unbearable, generals whose promotion is a, generals whose promotion is a guarantee of defeat, shopkeepers whose inevitable doom is bankruptcy, and the unsuccessful in the lump, as well as the celebrities and the averages. Nothing can alter the natural difference of degree in specific human faculties. In a society like ours, where private property and the sources of production has produced a monstrous misdistribution of the national income, resulting in a caste system which closes all the vocations to persons outside the level of income considered proper to them, a great deal of the incompetence and failure which afflict us is not in the really natural. It is the effect of the social pressure which is continually forcing square pegs into round holes. One of my grandfathers was clever with his hands. His study was fitted like a carpenter's shop, 
He built his own boots and would have been a valuable member of society as a craftsman living by his talent. Unfortunately, his station was that of a country gentleman, forbidden to make money by his gift of manual dexterity. For the management of his landed estate, he had not the smallest aptitude. He did not even live on it. As sport was not good there, he moved to another and wilder country, where he hunted and shot and fished in the boat he built for himself, consummately. For he could ride any horse, however unmanageable, and was a dead shot with any sort of firearm. Meanwhile, all he did as a landlord was to leave his estate in charge of an agent and mortgage it until it was completely insolvent. He was not naturally incompetent or inactive, very much the reverse. He was a square peg in a round hole. In a sensibly organized society, he would have had a useful and prosperous career as a craftsman. As a member of the landed gentry he was, what he was. One of my great-grandfathers did much better by practicing an extraordinary social imposter. To all appearances, he was a country gentleman intermarrying with the best county blood in Ireland. Yet all the time he was amassing riches by secretly carrying on the business of a pawnbroker in one of the poorest quarters in Dublin. His life should have been chronicled by Samuel Smiles as an example of self-help. How he contrived to have a great-grandson so utterly destitute of his qualities as I am remains a biological mystery. I should hardly have weathered my early years of rejection by the publishers, but for what was left of the profits of his pawnbroking. But leaving out of account these cases, which will disappear if and when society is more sensibly organized, and all the square pegs will not only find square holes, but be forced by social pressure into them instead of out of them, there will still be an irreducible minimum of variation in executive skill in all the vocations to be dealt with. I'm not putting this forward as a new discovery. For all states, democratic or plutocratic, act on it by instituting apprenticeship, examinations, articles, diplomas, registers, rules, ordinations, fellowships, and other devices for confining practice in the trades and professions to persons who have qualified themselves by years of study and exercise to act as skilled mechanics, doctors, dental surgeons, lawyers, parsons, accountants, architects, and the rest. But there are dangerous gaps in these ring fences created round the vocations. For instance, a person of first-rate commercial ability who has built up a business employing thousands of proletarians in the production of vitally necessary goods or services may leave it to the relative, usually a son, whose ability is second-rate, third-rate, or even negative, so that the business, though it runs on its own established grooves for a time, cannot adapt itself to new processes or changing social conditions, and finally dies of obsolescence. In socialized business, this cannot occur. Nobody now dreams of allowing posts in the national service to be filled by heredity, except the throne which, if left uncertain or subject to any sort of competition, might produce a civil war at every royal disease. And the throne cannot be gambled away from hand to hand in a single night, or left to any relative or favorite acquaintance of its owner as a private business can. The worst gap in the ring fences is the omission of comprehension from the list of skilled vocations. It is assumed that anyone can conduct a business, just as it is assumed that anyone can choose the right prime minister. The result is that very few of our businesses are managed by persons who understand them comprehensively, and prime ministers capable of a comprehensive policy are very rare birds indeed. 
Mr. Everyman may try his hand at either job and do his damnest in both. But there is a special democratic requirement in the case of the Everyman family, which makes any attempt to restrict their political activities rouse fierce opposition. When the law becomes an instrument of oppression, as laws often do, especially before they have been amended in the light of experience of their working, it is the everyman's who know where the shoe pinches. For them there must be Congress, in which they can squeal their complaints, agitate for their pet remedies, move resolutions and votes of confidence or the reverse, draft private bills and call on the government to adopt and enact them, and criticize the government to do their utmost with impunity. And as such congresses must be attended by the rulers who could not possibly conduct the business of the country if they had to listen to Mr. E and Mrs. E and Miss E ventilating their grievances for longer or oftener than a few weeks every two years, a day-to-day ventilation and agitation must be affected by the newspapers and pamphlets, which should have the same privileges as the congresses. Thus, what we call freedom of Congress, freedom of speech, freedom of agitation, freedom of the press are democratic necessities, as they should be as representative of the every man as it is possible to make them. Congresses should be picked up haphazard like a jury, or by some other method that makes party selection impossible. Legislators and rulers should, on the contrary, be as unrepresentative of every man as possible, short of being inhuman. The Everyman Congress will give us everything desirable that Parliament gives us at present, and depriving it of powers that Parliament does not really possess and never has nor can possess, we shall lose nothing. The supremacy of our cabinet is as complete as that of the Russian Politburo, or Subnarkom, or whatever they call their cabinets of political and industrial thinkers and statesmen in these days of changing names. But the mischief is that as Parliament can give this power to whom it pleases without any scientific tests of political capacity to guide it, we get cabinets and even prime ministers who are windbags and do-nothings, religious bigots, rich plutocrats as such resolute conservatives and reactionaries, dangerous undesirables, illiterate anti-intellectuals, and ludicrous misfits of all sorts. The problem remains how to limit Mr. Everyman's choice to the politically competent, classified and graded according to their degrees of such competence. This we cannot do until we know who the competent people are. We must therefore begin by somehow making registers of persons mentally capable of functioning efficiently as parish councillors, district and county councillors, city aldermen or secretaries of state for home affairs, treasury finance, foreign affairs, and so on. Such registers had better be called panels, as we are now all familiar with panel doctors and can easily go on to panel prime ministers. But this again we cannot do without anthropometric measurements and tests. Our present method of testing fitness for legislative work is by majority of votes in localities varying so widely in population and character that no common measure of competence can be obtained that way. For the highest positions, we have selection by the Prime Minister recommending a suitable person to the King. But as neither the Prime Minister nor the King can know all the eligible people in the community, their choice is limited to their circle of acquaintance which is much smaller than the number of available qualified persons. It is obviously not applicable to the permanent public services, 
which have to be recruited in many thousands from masses of people utterly unknown in Downing Street or Buckingham Palace. For them, after a long trial of jobbery at the top and the press gang at the bottom, we have been driven to the Chinese system of literary examination, supplemented by medical tests and personal interviews. Of late, intelligence tests of a simple kind have come into fashion, but they are extensions of the examination system and leave it undisturbed. Have we really any alternative to the examination system now that we are up against the democratic necessity for a census of political capacity and a hierarchy of panels founded on it? This also shall have a chapter to itself later on. Chapter 7. Equality Democracy means equality. But what does equality mean? Obviously, it does not mean that we are all alike in political faculty or indeed any faculty. Nature, inexorably, divides us into a mass of persons differing in aptitudes and ability with a percentage of nincompoops and a percentage of geniuses. But as their bodily needs are the same, their food and clothes and lodging can be rationed equally, and they are all equally indispensable. The cabin boy needs more food and wears his clothes out faster than the aging admiral the same income will provide for either of them. They are both equally necessary to the work of the fleet, and their common civilization is a necessary part of the civilization of the nation, and indeed of the world. Admirals of the same rank are paid alike whether they are Bings or Nelsons. Cabin boys, quick or slow, clever or stupid, are paid also alike. All civilized communities consist mostly of classes within which wages and salaries are the same the figures varying from class to class according to their customary standard of living, but not from individual to individual, however varied their characters and talents. Differences in character and talents cannot be assessed in terms of money. For instance, nobody can suppose that because Mr. Joseph Lewis, world champion heavyweight boxer, can earn more in 15 three-minute rounds than Einstein in 15 years, his exertions are 180,000 times as valuable as Einstein. Nobody challenged to fix the incomes of the two on their merits could do so. It would be like trying to measure in money the difference between the relative value to the family of a frying pan and a Bible. The prices of a frying pans and Bibles are fixed, not according to their merits, but to their marginal cost of production. That is, production under the least favorable circumstances. Bibles are cheaper than bottles of brandy and suits of clothes than diamond rings, though their value is infinitely greater. The remedy is for the government to control production in the order of its social desirability, so that nobody shall be able to buy a diamond ring while children are going naked or in rags, and to see that the citizens shall pay no more for their goods than their average cost of production. But before this pitch of socialism, or civilization, or scientific humanism, or whatever you choose to call it, is reached, the government will have to provide the country with cabin boys and admirals and consequently to fix their prices. Now, it is easy for a democratic statesman to jump to the conclusion that, as we all cost the same to feed, clothe, and house decently, no matter how our abilities vary, the simple solution is to give us all the same share of the national income. But this will bring him up against the fact that it costs more to produce an animal as such than a cabin boy as such, though their needs as human beings are the same. If we reduce them to a common denominator, we shall get a superfluity of cabin boys and no admirals, 
The cost of production of a worker as such varies with the sort of worker required. In Japan, the cost of a cotton operative as such is a penny an hour. In Lancashire, it is 20 pence. In Tsarist Russia, the cost of production of a common laborer as such was 24 shillings a month. Within the British Commonwealth, we have black African workers who are expected by pink settlers to be grateful for a hut, a scrap of garden, the privilege of being British subjects, instruction in Christianity by missionaries, and eight shillings a month, pocket money. Now legislators and administrators, managers and scholars, lawyers and doctors and clergymen, artists and philosophers are not to be had on these terms. They cost education, culture gentle nurture, privacy, decency, and some leisure. When the Soviet government in Russia started with the intention of giving all workers an equal share of the national income their labor was producing, it found that they were not producing enough to give each of them more than the pittance earned by the cheapest labor under the Sardom. It had either to increase the national income to such an amount as would enable it to pay every worker on the professional scale, which was not immediately possible, or else do without an educated public service, which meant pulling the linchpin out of the communist cart and collapsing in hopeless bankruptcy. Equality of income had therefore to be dropped until the national dividend could be raised to the professional level. This level is attainable and is within sight of being attained. But meanwhile, Russia has a bureaucracy and a professional class with incomes ten times greater than the hewers of wood and drawers of water. The statesman aiming at equal distribution of income will find that he must fix a wage figure at which no talent or genius can be wasted, through lack of the means for its fullest cultivation. As this figure will at first exceed that arrived at by dividing the total national income by the number of people in the country, he must maintain the incomes of the bureaucracy and the professions at the fixed figure, as at first charge on the national income. The rest he must distribute as best he can with equality of income as his goal, using every device to increase the national income and using the increase to level up the lowest wage to the grade above it until all the grades are leveled up to the fixed figure and equality of income attained virtually, if not mathematically. For mathematical equality is not an end in itself. The politicians with whom Stalin lost patience when he derided them as equality merchants were not only clamoring for it before it was possible, but failing to foresee that when achieved it will have lost its present urgency. Even in capitalist society, there is a level at which it ceases to matter. The difference between a class income of a couple of hundred pounds a year or less and a couple of thousands or more is disastrous, because the physically vigorous and habitually industrious 200 classes, cut off by its poverty from cultivating its natural stores of leadership and talent, and the thousands class, debilitated by parasitic idleness, is equally cut off from interbreeding with the workers. But as between the class incomes of 5,000 a year and 50,000, the millionaire figure, this restriction of eugenic selection does not exist. Education in them is the same. The career is equally open to the talents. They associate on terms of equality. They belong to the same clubs, they eat the like food, wear the like clothes, live in the same squares and streets in the same fashionable end of the town. Some of them have five houses and others only two, but they can live in one at a time only. They employ the same lawyers and the same doctors, and they buy at the same shops. In short, they are intermarriageable. 
There was so little personal advantage in being 10 times as rich as one's next-door neighbor that millionaires like Carnegie and Pierpoint Morgan, Ford and Morris, give away their surpluses and found Rockefeller trusts, pilgrim trusts, and the like, to get rid of their unneeded money and do good with it. A legacy of 20,000 pounds, which is the golden dream of a poor man, makes a rich one swear because it gives him the trouble of claiming and investing it. Consequently, when the entire population is brought up to our 5,000 level, the main objects of equality of income will be secured. And the government, though it must still take care of that no class gets poorer, need not prevent any individual becoming richer if he can or she can, and thinks it worth the trouble. Such an ambition may even be encouraged when it acts as an incentive to increase production. In the USSR, it was found impossible to increase production, or even maintain it, until piecework and payment by results was established in spite of the equality merchants. When democratic socialism has achieved sufficiency of means, equality of opportunity and national intermarriageability for everybody, with production kept in its natural order from necessities to luxuries, and the courts of justice unbiased by mercenary barristers, its work will be done. For these, and not a mathematical abstraction like equality of income, are its real goal. The present stratification of society will be leveled up until the largest possibilities of human nature are no longer starved. But it will still be human nature with all its enterprises, ambitions, and emulations in full swing, and with its pioneering superior persons, conservative average persons, and relatively backward inferiors in their natural places, all fully fed, educated up to the top of their capacity, and intermarriageable. Equality can go no farther. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.